You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey there, gang. On this episode of the Finding Center podcast, Andrew Huberman is going to join us. He's a PhD in neuroscience. He's a tenured professor in the Department of Neurobiology at Stanford University School of Medicine. He's made numerous important contributions to the field of brain development, brain plasticity, and neural regeneration and repair. He's been published in Time Magazine, Scientific American. He's part of the National Eye Institute's Audacious Goals Initiative to Restore Vision to the Blind. He runs the Huberman Lab at Stanford where he researches how the brain works, how it functions, how it can change through experience, which we call plasticity, and how to repair brain circuits damaged by injury or disease, which we call regeneration. This last area is an area we hit really hard in our conversation I was so fascinated to learn the science behind the three components necessary for adult neuroplasticity and learning new tasks past the age of 25. Doesn't it seem like it just gets harder to learn? Andrew clearly lays out a game plan for us to try to find the balance between high performance and longevity so we don't get burned out and we don't get sick. It's all science-based. It's unbelievable. This was, for me, while sitting with him, just a fascinating lesson. I know you're going to like it. There are a lot of tangible takeaways that I started implementing immediately into my life that day, and I've noted some improvement. Stay tuned at the end for my biggest nuggets, and be sure to check the podcast info for Andrew's resource center that he provided us to learn more or to follow up on some of his great recommendations that I've put into my life. Oh, yeah, and follow Andrew on Instagram at Huberman Lab. That's at H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. Super interesting lessons on there. A recent one was a video on why we quit, why you fail, and how to persevere. And no, it's not a motivational speech. It's the actual science behind it all. He is brilliant. I hope you guys enjoy. Joining us now on the Finding Center podcast, Andrew Huberman. Andrew, we got off the phone a couple of weeks ago, and you had mentioned something that I wrote down. I like to write everything down. Let's start with that. You said, and I'm going to loosely quote you here, neuroscience has not been in a place to do much for people up until now. What do you mean by that? Yeah, a lot of fields of science, cell biology, astronomy, um, generally biology, you know, they study a lot of the basic mechanisms, like what happens in the brain and body um, just across the normal lifespan, what happens in the brain and body in disease. But there comes a time in every one of these subfields where the information that's there and the problems that people have been hacking away at reach a point where there are clear actionable steps that people can take in order to improve their health. It's like the, the, there's the, I would call it, you know, the center of mass of the information moves in a particular direction that people generally agree, okay, this is the set of issues, these are the things going on, and these are the things to, to do. It doesn't mean that we have all the answers, but I really feel like I said that to you during our conversation because it's very clear to me after having been in this field for about, you know, and observing it and researching it and spending time in it and being a student of it for about, 25 years that now there are things that everybody can and should be doing to improve their brain health. 
What are the principles? What are the set of issues that everybody can generally agree upon? So that's a great question. So uh, there's a lot there, but I think we now really understand, for instance, how the brain develops. You know, we don't know everything about it, but the field, and when I say we, I mean the field as a whole, um, not just my laboratory, of course, has been the result of many, many groups working very, very hard over many decades. We now understand how you get, go from sperm meets egg to a baby, to a juvenile, to a young adult, to an aged person. We understand the sequence of events that happens, including what goes wrong and their various conditions. We understand, for instance, that the brain is plastic. It has a capacity to change and not just early in life, but throughout the lifespan. I couldn't make that statement 20 years ago. 20 years ago, we, everyone agreed that the juvenile or baby brain was very plastic. It had this tremendous capacity for change. If I said, or if anyone said, oh, you know, the adult brain has as much capacity to change, scientists, neuroscientists would have said that's absolutely wrong. But um, now it's very clear that the human brain was designed to change. It has a capacity for something which I call self-directed adaptive plasticity. It's, that's a, a lot of words thrown in there, but the self-directed part is key. It was designed for us to change it if we want to. And there's so much data. I don't think any card-carrying neuroscientist would argue differently. So that's an important principle that's emerged. It's very, uh, another really important principle that's emerged is that the brain and the body are not separate. Sure, the brain is housed in the skull, you know, the, the spinal cord and brain make up what we call the central nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. But the brain and the body, there's no real separation because the nervous system extends everywhere. The gut, the liver, the heart, the lungs, the, the muscles, everything. It's all part of one system. And so the brain-body distinction and even the mind-brain distinction has become kind of irrelevant. Like, that's kind of a 90s discussion. It's, it's over. The mind and the body as a separate entity or absolutely i mean there are pathways out of your brain and into your body there are pathways from your body into your brain the so-called gut brain connection i mean it's it's so bi-directional that the even the mention of mind body is starting to fall away i could say that the body has a brain just as much as i could say the brain has a body attached to it now it is true that our identity you know i can remove all, all my limbs and still be andrew you know, I'd still be myself. I would have certain, you know, components of my personality intact. Some things would change, of course, but generally I'd be the same. So it's not that every part of the body is as, you know, central to who we are as the next. You know, our brain is key. It's the, it's the master computer. But I think that now people agree that there are things that you can do just with your body in terms of action. There are things that you can do just with movement just with respiration just with gut health that without question impact the brain and that's because they're part of the same system now when you're talking about the brain is plastic it has the ability to change on on your instagram profile i see a bunch of this and this was one that recently you just posted was the self-directed adapted plasticity talk to me about that what does that all mean yeah so when we talk about neuroplasticity what we're talking about is the the ability of the brain to change in response to experience. And that happens throughout the lifespan. It's happening even if you do nothing about it. So a child uh, is learning language, a child learns to walk, 
Uh, it takes some effort, but a child learns all those things very easily. It's just kind of passive experience because early in life, the brain is bathed in chemicals and it's set up the architecture, the, the physical structure of it is set up for change. It's designed to become a map of your early experience. So let's say you play a lot of sports when you're young and then you take some time off. It's going to be much easier to go back to playing those sports because those maps, those memories are, are built into, into your brain. But it's very clear that across the lifespan, the brain has this ability to change neuroplasticity. But there are specific things that everyone can do should they choose, just make the deliberate choice. I'm going to learn, let's say, a language or a new physical skill. And those can be acquired throughout the lifespan or art or music. And it's very clear that that happens because of three general sets of cellular processes. And what I mean by cellular processes is that the nerve cell, neurons, neurons are just nerve cells, are the fundamental building block of the brain. Those neurons and the way they connect to one another dictates who you are, how you speak, how you feel when you wake up in the morning, everything. And they can change the way they connect up to one another by adding new neurons, which frankly doesn't happen that much. It, you know, a few years ago, there was all this discussion about, oh, you can get new neurons. There are a few areas of the nervous system that we could talk about where you can get new neurons. But generally, the neurons that you have are the ones you're working with your entire life. What was life. the thought process behind adding new neurons? Yeah, so, you know, for about you know, 50 years, you know, the field of neuroscience isn't that old to begin with, you know, I mean, the, the, it began around the turn of the last century and, you know, 1906 was the first Nobel prize in neuroscience, um, given the Spanish guy for his discovery of the structure of the nervous system. And then after that, it was pretty quiet from about 1906 until the 1960s. And then people developed the, the ability to record electrical activity in the human brain. And that's where things really took off. And then the next big wave was when things like molecular biology and really good computers hit the field because then you could do all sorts of stuff. Okay. So now everything's going so fast. I mean, we, the, the field of neuroscience is, is really on an, in an acceleration in terms of the amount of infor, information just pouring in about how the brain works, etc. And about 10 years ago, there was this idea like, oh, maybe this idea that we all learned in school, the neuroscientists learned in school anyway, that there are no new neurons in the adult brain. Maybe that's not true. So people tested it and they did find a few neurons born in the adult human brain late in life. But frankly, it wasn't very many. And so there've been a lot more papers now in recent years showing that we don't get new neurons. Now that sounds depressing, but it actually, it's, it, it, this may be a good thing. It may be because we, we vastly overproduce neurons during early development. Most people don't know this, but everyone was born with about three to five times more neurons than they need. And then there's this wave of what they call naturally occurring cell death, where about most of those, about two thirds are just wiped out. When does that occur? Uh, that occurs in late embryonic development. So when we were all in our mother's womb and in about the first year of life. And so people don't realize this, but if you... If you think about it, like a baby, like a newborn baby is kind of like a larvae. It's just kind of flopping there. And what they learn in the first year of life is extraordinary, right? There's nothing like it. They learn to walk. They learn to make facial expressions. They learn to babble. They eventually speak about it a year of age or so, plus or minus some months. They learn all that by losing neurons. They learn all that by losing neural connections, except that the ones that remain get much, much stronger. And that sort of brings it to the sort of first real principle plasticity is the way to 
really change your brain and nervous system is to make certain connections stronger. And so that's, you know, you hear in the news, oh, new neurons, we have new neurons. New neurons is not the way that you get better at things. Building stronger connections, reinforcing certain pathways. And when I say by a pathway, I mean, like even if I just were to reach out and pick up a cup, if I do that a thousand times a day, that pathway is going to become very, very strong. The other way you can get plasticity is to weaken connections. And there's nothing wrong about that. You know, it's unfortunate that we don't have a different language for it, but people, no one wants to get weaker. But weakening of connections that you don't need is valuable because like, for instance, if I asked you your childhood phone number or your home address, you know, in a home that you grew up in, I don't know that it's still valuable to you or not. My parents don't live in the home that I grew up in. So that information, unfortunately, is still taking up space in my head. It's still with you. It's still with me. Yes. And it doesn't serve me. Sunshine Court. Hope you whoever's living there is ne- doing well. You'll never forget. You probably even remember some of the phone numbers of your friends if you grew up with a landline, although nowadays people don't grow up with landlines. So there's all this information that you know we would discard, and the fact that you can't discard it is proof positive that you that our brain was very plastic early in life, and you didn't have to think about it. Oh, I'm going to remember this number. It's just with you. So brain plasticity is very, very robust early in life, and yet we know that brain plasticity can and does occur later in life as well. But, and here's the, the key but, is that the principles, the things that one needs to do in order to get plasticity after about age 25 are t- almost completely different than the things one needs to do in order to change the brain before age 25. And I don't know why more people aren't talking about this because it's this idea has been around for ages, but now there's really a, a ton of data. And everyone talks about plasticity and just says, oh, fire together, wire together, which actually is a phrase um, that my colleague Carla Schatz at Stanford coined. Um, I didn't coin. It was the one that um, you know gave rise to this idea of the first six years that what we expose kids in the first six years of life is so critical. But unfortunately, it hasn't been... Um, promoted as something that adults should pay attention to in any specific way. So we know that we should not keep kids in black boxes and we should not, um, we should expose them to as many positive things as we can and limit their exposure to negative things. But adults aren't really thinking about what we should be doing. We hear about nuns that did crossword puzzles and, and then, you know, everyone wants to know what somebody else ate if they live to be you know, a hundred and still have their yeah, memory. Yeah, we're checking out the blue zones. Exactly, and that. Yeah. exactly. But I think what we really need to do is say, what does neuroscience tell us about how to change the brain in adulthood? And that's why I call it self-directed adaptive plasticity because children don't sit there and say, you know, I think I really want to learn about, uh, you know, Paddington the bear, but I don't want to learn about Babar. So, you know, you're just exposing them to whatever they are. Or, you know, kid is exposed to football, maybe likes it, doesn't like it, who knows. But as an adult, you have the power of choice. And that power of choice, and it, coupled to a couple other things we, we should talk about, give you the ability to change your brain should you want to. When that's powerful, right? That you realize you are choosing your future, that you have that ability. Absolutely. And when, when you're talking about either strengthening or weakening the connections, are these also strengthening and weakening the habits that we're forming? Yeah. So I would say that if any, yes, and it's bidirectional. So repeated action is what really changes neural circuits it's what changes the brain and you know it's interesting the it brings up a question of you know how repeated how often we can uh, you know we can get really down in the weeds about what the science says and and what it means for learning different things that the 
the repeated action component is absolutely key. The So let's say I want to learn something yes. as an adult. Let's say I don't like something about my brain and I want to change the way it works. There are a couple principles that one should absolutely apply. Um, first of all, if you're older than 25 or so, these aren't strict cutoffs. It's not like you wake up on your 25th birthday and brain plasticity changes over. This is a, a, a gradual shift out of developmental plasticity and a gradual shift into what we call adult plasticity. First of all, there's an absolute requirement for attention. You you can't learn passively any longer. So just sleep. Where you could before you were 25 years old. Oh, yeah. You can no longer do that. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, for those of you with children out there, um, you know, I didn't learn an instrument. I, Lord knows I, I wish I did. I do um, too. You know, languages can be learned without an accent three, four languages up until a certain age. You know, it's tough because kids can, you don't want to push them too far and yet you want to push them toward, you know, having um, greater options later. That's, that's of the trade off. So, um, and that's highly individual by family and by parent. but um, yeah, but just passive exposure, you know, let kids run around on a field and play and they're going to learn motor movement. They're going to learn agility. They're going to learn these things. It's remarkable. And as adults, you need to focus. So, there has to be some level of attention. Now, focus itself is a tricky one. The, the field of neuroscience has a lot to say about attention and focus. First of all, um, rather than just throw out a bunch of, of chemical names at the end, I'll sort of layer these in. So there's a chemical that's released in the brain called acetylcholine. Okay, And what's important about this chemical is it's like a microphone. Imagine that neurons are having a conversation. So let's say uh, you're, out, you're trying to learn a new motor skill or you're trying to learn a new language. Your neurons are chattering away. They're trying to figure it out. There's confusion. There's kind of strain. First of all, that strain is your brain trying out new combinations. It's like uh, a Rubik's Cube. It's like you're, it's working. It's trying to figure out the combination. So that strain is a little bit like the lactic acid burn you get if you're running up a, up a hill or you know in the final reps of a, of a set. Right. You know it's working. That's the good stuff. That's, you know, a lot of people back away from mental strain because it, it, it's strenuous. But in fact, some of the same people who are very willing to lean into physical effort back away from mental strain. It doesn't feel good. It was designed to feel a little uncomfortable. That strain is being met with the release of this chemical acetylcholine that acts like a microphone that it's just imagine sort of like a sportscaster sticking a microphone between two people having a conversation on the field. That conversation is now amplified. Everybody can hear it. And that conversation, just like in real life, that conversation is likely to be remembered, show up on YouTube later, et cetera. That conversation between neurons stands a much greater chance of being reinforced, of those connections becoming stronger long after that conversation. How do people is over. recognize when they're in that mental strain mode? It's the point where you feel like you're not getting anywhere and you want to give up. It's it's like it's I wish frustration. It's frustration. It's frustration. It's confusion. Often it's sometimes it's even the feeling of reading a page and thinking, I don't remember anything I just read. So you go back and you read it again. And you go, I remember a third of what I just read. And then, you know, I, I have this experience all the time and I think, God, what's happening to me? And I realize, no, this was always hard. It was always hard to learn things unless I was really excited to learn them. And so that's the kind of second component, which is that acetylcholine and another what's called neuromodulator dopamine they, there's a strong emotional component to their release. So uh, here's the, the thing to, um, for your listeners, really, that acetylcholine is released by focused attention. 
So if you pay attention to something, you're going to get more acetylcholine there. And as a result, that attention will reinforce the conversation. There's more, it's more likely you're going to get plasticity, whatever it is that you're doing. So focus is powerful. It's also difficult. Very few people have really excellent levels of attention and focus unless there are two things in place. The first one is adrenaline, drive, and alertness. So many of your listeners are probably familiar with, you know, game time or it's like game on now or really like, you know, we have all these names for it's like the eye of the tiger. You're like really in the zone or you're in flow attention and acetylcholine, your brain and your whole nervous system is being bathed with these chemicals that are designed to say it like now. And that sense of urgency is hard to create artificially. So I think everyone would know, you know, if somebody was, you know, um, if somebody's spouse or kid was in danger, everybody has this capacity. It's It's easy to get into it. Get into it. The whole world disappears. In fact, uh, and we could, I don't want to go too far off track, but there's literally a change to your visual system when you have this focus. When you are focused on something and it's important, your eye actually changes shape so that the, you see certain things very well and you see the big picture less well. You literally do. There's a change in the optics of the eye. So it's not just a psychological thing. It's a physical change in the way that you're you're, you're looking through a soda straw, basically. Is it possible to reverse engineer that with your vision? I know sometimes when I'm nervous, I feel like I have wandering eyes. Like if I go on the news or something in the morning and I catch myself, I'm like, geez, I'm nervous. What's the deal here? I always just try to really focus my eyeballs. And when I tell people who get nervous, hey, focus your attention on what you're really trying to accomplish and focus your vision, does that also have that effect? Can you, I guess back your way into it, into the focus? Yeah, absolutely. So this is what's really exciting about vision is that, first of all, about 40% of your brain is designed for vision. We're, we're a primate species and we don't navigate the world by smell. We don't navigate the world by touch except in certain, certain circumstances or even by hearing, a little bit with hearing, but mostly vastly more by vision. Which is a big part of your study. Which is a big part of what my lab works on. And the visual system believe it or not, was not designed to see. Before it was designed to see, it was designed to adjust your level of alertness. So you're long before, you know, we had sight, right? In some primordial version of ourselves. We had somewhere in there, right? God, Mother Nature, both decided to take a piece of the brain and squeeze it out of the skull. And that piece of the brain outside of your skull... It's called your eyes. Your eyes are a piece of your brain. They're the only part of your central nervous system, part of your brain, that's outside of your, of your spinal cord and skull. And it was put there to figure out how alert to be, to wake up the brain. And then, because nature and all this you know, biology is so magical, it, it's not magic. There, there are principles behind it, but it's so magical that basically they added vision right? It was, they, I don't know. I always say, you know, I wasn't consulted at the design phase. Right. <laughs> so I, you know, I know about how things are now, but I wasn't consulted at the design phase. So this is just how, how, it, how it works. Then it was uh, layered on top of that was the ability to see where things are. So the, you know, that there are objects in your environment or, and then it was where those objects are moving. And then it is what those objects are. And then it's what color they are. And then the kind of fine details, but at a fundamental level, 
vision and the way you use your vision sets your level of attention. So you have a tool that you naturally arrived at. And what's so interesting about that is it speaks right to how the visual system adjusts focus. So one of the reasons why people start darting their eyes around, and this is directly related to some research in our lab um, that should be coming out soon, but I'm happy to talk about it. Um, one of the reasons people, when you get nervous, your eyes start darting around is because your look, your as your level of alertness and nervousness goes up, it's as if you're not seeing the big picture. You're looking through binoculars. You're looking through a soda straw. And so your eyes are actually darting around the room trying to collect information about the no whole kidding. room. So you have two options in that case. You can either do what you do, which is to home right in on it, or really focus on a specific location in space. Or you can do what I call dial out your vision. And the way you do this is you keep your head and your eyes stationary and you try and see the entire room all at once. So you can actually expand your vision so that you can see the things on the walls, the ceiling. You actually see yourself in the space. Now that dialing... That's kind of a meditative quality. Yeah. Looking, seeing the seer, I guess, would be kind of the phrase in meditation Mm. that I've heard a lot. Yeah, or soft gaze, people talk about. Soft gaze, yes. Yeah. So, you know, in visual neuroscience, um, we call it panoramic vision. So the cool thing about panoramic vision is that it has this very fast ability to lower your amount of um, alertness or stress, stress, alertness, autonomic arousal, all kind of the same thing. But so it really lowers your stress quickly. In fact, much faster than any technique that we're, that we're aware of. So, you know, and what's, what's cool is it's completely covert. Nobody knows you're doing it. Right. So it's not like you have to go do a breathing exercise or run off and meditate. So in real time, you can lower your stress by dialing out your gaze. And the the benefit of that actually is that your reaction time is about four times faster. So when you're running to catch a ball, you actually are you're tracking the ball, but you're actually um, if you're very skilled, which you are, you not a catching. Just okay. A, just a block. Okay. Well, but certainly better at catching than I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you do that, or let's say when you drive a car, you're actually in panoramic vision a lot of the time. You, you, are, you don't realize it, but when you walk through, let's say you're walking down the street and you, and you blink and then a, a bee hits your eyelid. We've all had that experience. Yeah. And you, know, you weren't consciously seeing the bee fly at you. Your reaction time is so much faster when you're in this panoramic mode. And it has the capacity to lower your level of internal stress. Now... That's a great thing to do to, to learn how to control your stress. It's very easy. And it's because the visual system plugs right in to this thing we call the autonomic nervous system, which is our kind of internal level of, of stress, our heart rate, our breathing, et cetera. So you, you actually have conscious control over your internal level of stress. Now, for plasticity, what we're calling stress might not actually be a bad thing. Now, you don't want to be in panic, but, to, but if you want to learn something, and it's challenging. The key is to narrow that focus even more. It really is like final reps on a set where you're grinding into failure. The idea we, we now know based on principles of nervous system function and, and sports physiology that just gripping the bar harder sends more nerve signals through the whatever anterior posterior yes. chain that one happens to be using. And you can actually lift more rather than being relaxed, right? So it's kind of similar. You want to lean into things in a kind of relaxed mode. And then once they start getting difficult... You want to narrow your focus more and more. You want to lean in harder. Then and it's harder that and harder. white knuckle effect. That's that white knuckle effect, and of course, it can't. You can't keep that up for very long periods of time. So we we said that you need focus to get adult plasticity to learn things. 
you need some level of, of urgency and we can return to urgency. But the other one is that none of this was designed to be done for very long periods of time. I think one thing that a lot that backs a lot of people away from trying to learn new things or change their brain is this idea that you're going to have to do it for many, many hours on end. So one of the key principles of brain change in adulthood is that you need to keep the bouts of learning or the behaviors pretty limited to anywhere from, and I'm not joking here, anywhere from two minutes to about 10 minutes a day max. Well, that's manageable. Totally manageable. And of course, you know, for the scientists listening, you know, those numbers are, are pulled from literature, you know, the sort of bulk of literature. I'm not saying that some people can't maintain high levels of focus for an hour a day or that 30 seconds is no good. I'm not saying that. I'm, tr I'm putting out an, an, an actionable number that I think is reasonable for most people. Um, given other time constraints and given attention abilities, and that meet the the story in the literature that said that the scientific literature that says focused attention for specific isolated bouts done repeatedly over time leads to brain change in the adult. And I'll just point out one study or a set of studies done by a colleague of mine. He's now retired, uh, Eric Knudsen at Stanford. He really um, was one of the pioneers in understanding developmental plasticity you know plasticity in kids yes and he but he did some just I, the, the only word for them is is amazing experiments before he closed up his laboratory where he said okay what about adults and it turns out that a, he showed that adults could get as much plasticity as in childhood if they broke up the learning bouts into short sessions and if there was a sense of urgency and in the, in the case of the experiments he was doing, he actually made survival dependent. You know, he made the sense of urgency like really survival. So like conversational French is going to be very hard to learn in one day. But if your survival or your kid's survival depended on it, you, you could do it. So that tells you that tells us all that we have this capacity. It's in us. Is that because the urgency really ramps up and the focus based on the urgency and the adrenaline? Yeah, so, the, so the, the nervous system doesn't know urgency. The nervous system doesn't know anything. It only knows chemicals and electricity. Okay. So, the, so the, the, what the nervous system gets when you focus is this acetylcholine, this microphone stuck between neurons that amplifies that conversation and makes it more likely to be remembered. The other thing is that urgency promotes is the release of, acetyl, uh, of, of adrenaline. Excuse me. And adrenaline is also called epinephrine in some places. Those are the same thing. Okay. A lot of people don't know that, but it's the same thing. So epinephrine, adrenaline. And the other thing is the neuromodulator dopamine, which we normally associate with reward and feel-good stuff, but we'll talk more about that. That collection of acetylcholine, dopamine, and adrenaline, that's the cocktail. That's the, the plasticity cocktail. Because in the language of, of the brain and nervous system, Adrenaline means now's the time, now. Not an hour ago, not in a, in a week, now. It's on now. Whatever's happening now needs, is important. And acetylcholine is the chemical of this conversation is important, this particular thing. And dopamine tends to have a feel-good component. It's not always readily available. Like if we're forced to learn something, we're not, we're, you know, it's more of the like moan and groan kind of, all right, I have to do this. The have to versus the get to. The have to versus the get to. But when you start introducing dopamine, either because you tell yourself this is good for you or because it's actually pleasurable or you can sense yourself getting better 
Or if you have, you know, what my colleague Carol Dweck has talked about, sort of growth mindset probably has something to do with this. If you have true growth mindset, the friction, that confusion and that strain, if you can learn to reward that, then you're now in a position where you're getting dopamine as an additional chemical neuromodulator to amplify and accelerate the process. What I mean is you're, as you throw in more, more stuff into this cocktail, neurons are getting more of the stuff they need in order to change. And nature made it kind of challenging to get to these places because otherwise you would remember everything. And that would be terrible. You don't want to remember, well, maybe you do, but um, depending on, on your life circumstance, but you don't want to remember who was standing in front of you at the Starbucks this morning. It's irrelevant. The brain only wants to remember and use what it really needs. And so urgency is key. Focus is key. But the, the thing about dopamine is that dopamine amplifies and accelerates this so much. And so you say, well, how do you get dopamine? Like, how do I get more dopamine? Yeah, how do you reward the uncomfortable would be kind of the question that I had. Was exactly. How do we, you get uncomfortable, you want that acetylcholine, you want the uncomfortable nature, you want the frustration, you want that final couple reps on the bench or the squat or whatever it is that where the growth lies. But how do you get your body to reward being uncomfortable? Right. So there are a couple ways. Um, it's such a, an important principle. Like we, we both know people who, you know, they say things like, you know, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I think that's what they mean when they talk about this, that they get a kind of internal reward. They for get it. a kick you, out of yeah, it. Yeah. You, I'm sure you're this. I, I, I'm guessing that you're in this category. Um, so just based on your accomplishments and, and what you're doing now. So the key to this is to look to childhood plasticity. So the thing that kids do naturally when they learn is they have a sense of urgency. You know, it's often very important to them. Like their toys are really important. Yes. It all sounds kind of silly, but they have this element of play. The idea that something is really important and you want to focus on it, but that there's this little element, you kind of like lace the whole process with a little bit of, of lightness. Like I'm, like competitiveness has, has a lot to do with yes. this too. And I always like to say, I take it seriously, but it's not that serious. Right. It, it kind right. of frames it right. in a playful nature. But what we're doing, just to feel important, it is serious. Right. It's, and it's interesting, these, these um, sort of la language-based contradictions really highlight the neuroscience. It's like um, comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, take it seriously, but not that seriously. Um, you know, don't take things too seriously, but give them 110%, yeah. right? So these contradictions really underscore the biology, which is that when you can, you don't need dopamine in there. You don't need it. Focus and small bouts of, of like really hard effort will do it. But when you put dopamine in there, not only is it more pleasurable, but you start to reinforce the process more quickly. And then once you start seeing progress, then it becomes self-amplifying. You know, we both know people that, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced based uh, not on any experience of my own, but I'm pretty convinced that people who go into professional sports, people that do certain, certain sports um, that go into the more uh, elite aspects of, of the military and maybe in military in general, they, they're being selected for having this kind of um, sicko quality that we sometimes call it, but it's not sick. It's a very healthy quality, which is they understand that, that, that friction is them getting better. And when they sense themselves getting better, they want more of it. Yes. Right? You can't... It's, it's that lean-in feeling. Right. It's and, like, this is uncomfortable. I think this is good for me. I used to be afraid of public speaking. Like, I would stand amazing. up on stage and I'd almost pass out. Now, 
I love doing it. It's like a thing that I really get a kick out of it. And I just realized like I framed it in, in terms of like my football career, I'd be standing on the sideline, be looking across the way and I'd see Richard Seymour, Vince Wilfork. And I'm like, who's in charge of that human for the next three hours? I guess that's me. And it was terrifying. But then I was like, this is pretty badass. Like, this is pretty cool that I've got to block that dude. And it was a thrill. And then I realized it's the same thrill. Mm-hmm. It's the same feeling that you're getting standing up on stage presenting to a group. It's like kind of weak in the knees where your vision starts to really taper down. It's like, all right, just relax. This is the good stuff. This is the space you want to be in next. No, I, and, and your mention of the fact that it's the same feeling, that's really key. The, you know, the, the nervous system in the brain, it seems really complex. And the way it's organized is complex. And, and, you know, by all means, we haven't figured it all out. But the language of the nervous system is pretty basic. You get one set of circuits for stress. You get one set of circuits for alertness. Those tend to go together, actually. You get one set of, of when I say circuits, I mean connections in the brain and body for feeling good. Nature didn't design 20 of them. The nature, just the one. Just the one. And it can be applied to, to different things. It's highly... You're, your nervous system is really designed to adapt. And so if you were successful in anything at any point in life, it means that you can have those great sensations again from something else, but by definition, you know, I think that, so plasticity is the way that this happens. Like you were able to convert a sense of, of stress about public speaking into a sense of, of joy and pleasure and, and even a sense and a sense of winning excitement, excitement and winning. And so that's proof again, that, that it can be done. I think having tools to control one's stress, so the ability to go into panoramic vision, which is everyone has, um, versus focus their vision when they want to learn or and and really you know hone in on something, um, the repeated action. So you know I said you know focused deliberate behavior for about seven to ten minutes if you're trying to learn something new or that's challenging, and then back off. Right now it needs to be done repeatedly. And people say, well, how many times a week? You know, is it six times a week with a day off for Sundays? You know, ideally, if you're trying, if something is important to you and you want to acquire that skill or that shift in the way that your neurology works, ideally, you'll do some focused work on it every day at the beginning. And, fo- and we'll talk about some of the other aspects of life to focus on to really reinforce that. But those small, those small focused, you know, the, the small bouts of focused effort done repeatedly over time really are the language of the nervous system saying that says the nervous system understands is I need to change. I need to do something differently. Um, you know, I'm involved with a company called made for, I'm on their scientific advisory board as a, uh, a company that the basis of made for it's a, essentially a, a wellness company, but, um, you know, a huge basis of it is the idea of developing, new behaviors, acquiring new behaviors through small actionable steps, right? On the other side of the coin, there, there are things out there, which I think also have value that are really arguing that, you know, we're supposed to do something to kind of trampoline up to this higher level immediately. So one thing that I just wanted to sort of talk about in terms of plasticity is I, I put them into categories of like trampoline. I say trampoline because you can get on a trampoline and bounce next to a building and you can bounce up to the 10th floor and you can get a glimpse of what it's like on the 10th floor. And then you go back down. There's a lot of discussion right now about trampoline type tools for plasticity. They fall into the category of, and I don't have any business relationship to, to any of these or any bias 
toward or away from these. I'm just going to sort of lay them out as I see them. In the, okay. They, they are things like Halo. Direct brain stimulation through the skull. I know the guys at Halo, they trained with excellent neuroscientists. I've never tried Halo, but it's based on a principle that if you can amplify the amount of activity in the brain as you do a behavior, then you're going to get more plasticity faster. So it's like a headset um, to amplify activity in the brain. Um, it is designed to bypass the need for attention and give you the the neural effect that you would get from attention, which is to amplify the the activity in the brain. I think it's grounded in in very good principles. Um, I personally, and this is just my, and I've talked to them about this. My own personal concern is how specific is the area that you're stimulating. Because if you're putting on a headset and it's tilted a little bit forward, are you getting the right brain circuits activated? Gotcha, yeah. uh, that's for them to respond to. Um, hope, you know, if they listen to this, then guys, you know, give us an answer. And we, I just want an answer. I'm a scientist. I just want your answer. Of and course. Then, then I'll form an opinion. Um, there are tools like um, many people are talking about psychedelics these days. It's just, it, it's the conversation. My it lab, is, yeah. My lab doesn't work on them. Keep in mind that any conversation about psychedelics is a little complicated because it's in clinical trials, and in most places in the U.S., it's illegal. So it's still a, a Schedule Schedule One drug. Um, it, if it's not Schedule One, it's still illegal. So, yeah, that, where you, you know, where are you at on all that? Okay, because I, I do. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. got the book yeah. on my phone right yeah. now, Michael Pollan, yeah. How to Change Your Mind, and you yeah. hear a lot of conversations. I've got other people kind of recommending me to ayahuasca right. treatments or the DMT or you know, you hear a lot of microdosing with LSD or the mushrooms and, you know, what what's the truth on this? Is is some of it just mysticism? Is some of it based in reality? Where okay. are we at? Okay. Um, take a sip of water here. <laughs> we're, about, we're about to go into some interesting territory. I may make a few friends in this conversation. I may, I'll probably lose far more. Okay. Um, I apologize. But no, that's okay. You know, I, I have very strong feelings about the, about psychedelics and where the state of things now and what's out there. Um, first of all, I am not anti nor am I pro psych psychedelic use. Um, I will say I'm very concerned about their use in young people. So the more adults are talking about something as if it's safe, the, the more you can bet that kids are going to be doing it. Exactly. So, so that's just something to just get out of the way. No, first, I've, I've expressed right? those same concerns with the NFL potentially considering opening up marijuana to everybody. I'm like, you're just sending a bad message to kids who right. are looking at you for guidance as kind of their heroes going, well, hey, if if this guy's using it because of the pain, then, well, I should be using it too. It's like, no, 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 we're different beast here. But Definitely. I, I think it's, it's very dangerous in that respect. And I think for the NFL in particular, I just want to say this. It's like when you're looking at this, remember that like one month of abstaining from marijuana use – to pass a test is a lot for the youth, mm -hmm. like it, public relations wise for parents to be able to speak to their kids. Like there's a lot that goes behind that to go, Hey, these guys aren't using drugs. You probably shouldn't either because developmentally their brains aren't capable. Yeah. Well, and now, you know, we've been talking about development. Their brains are really plastic. So the States that are, that one creates with through marijuana use early in life are going to be reinforced. Like in other words, let's get one thing very clear. Marijuana THC makes people dumber. Okay. It makes people dumber at all ages. Yeah. And if someone wants to come shoot me because of this, fine. Like the, it makes people dumber. Well, let's not while, do that while you're, you know, it's amazing how people protect their, their, their chemical choices. 
and again, I'm not an anti-drug crusader. Let's just look at the biology, right? It basically lowers glucose uptake in the brain. You're limiting the amount of fuel that neurons can take. You're developing loose, not firm associations between things in space and time. It's called being high for a reason, right? <laughs> I'm not saying that state is necessarily bad for all people. There are some people that, that might even benefit from being in that state. But if you're going to children in that state repeatedly, you worry. So I'm not, and I'm not saying it makes it, so people always say, oh, but I know this person and they're super high functioning and they smoke a lot of weed. Okay. But they were probably even more high functioning and they result, they resort to that. So I'm not saying people shouldn't smoke weed by any stretch. What I'm saying is kids, um, bathing their brain in THC, you know, cannabinoid receptor stimulation is not going to serve them well in the long run. It's just not. And so does that mean that one-time marijuana use is going to destroy their brain? Probably not. You know, there's a lot of data, <laughs> anecdotal data that says different. But so the kid thing is, is just, you know, different. And psych But psychedelics are very interesting. They are very interesting compounds. They are mainly compounds that promote um, activity of what are called the serotonin receptors. Serotonin activity is prominent in sleep. It's prominent in um, calm and kind of placid and relaxed states. Um, it, this is why marijuana in many people is an a motivator. It makes you pretty happy to be where you're at as opposed to something You're content. Else. You're content. Um, most of the prescription, uh, the, well, yeah, I would say about two thirds to three quarters of the prescription antidepressants are serotonin agonists, meaning they increase serotonin. So this is your Prozac, your Zoloft, your, um, it, for the aficionados, the so-called SSRIs. They're designed to increase serotonin. And one of the major side effects of those, they, they actually can help many people when prescribed properly, but one of the side effects or sets of side effects are people can um, lose appetite or they can have excessive appetite, kind of like, this sounds like marijuana, right? Um, it can do odd things to libido and sex drive. Some people, it suppresses it. Um, so that's why there's a whole new class of or other class of antidepressants that work on dopamine and norepinephrine, things like Wellbutrin or buprenorphine. <clears throat> Excuse me. So marijuana is generally makes people more relaxed and it makes their brain calmer. Um, it doesn't tend to make them very high functioning in the what's at least when they're high. For some people, many people take it because they feel like life is too stressful and they need to lean out of life. Okay, so that's marijuana. Um it, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm just going to talk about the science of it. Okay. I can place judgment on That's it. That's right. Except for the kid thing. Like, I just don't think kids should be smoking a lot of weed. Um, my, my personal bias. And if you look at people who are very successful and high functioning in life, it is rare to see that they were doing a lot of drugs at, in their youth. You know, some maybe, but okay. Psychedelics. This conversation is one I followed for a very long time. Let me just first say, um, without disclosing anything, I am familiar with their effects. I understand what they do. Yeah, I have my hand in the air yeah, too. I understand what they do. Um, most of them are serotonin a activators. Most of them produce states that are similar to dreamlike states that you would have in sleep. You know, things happen. You there are visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations. Space and time becomes kind of morphed in ways that it's not present in adulthood. Uh, uh, excuse me, in adulthood, in in wakefulness. So space and time get get morphed in ways that are not. Um, Typical of, of waking states. Okay. Okay. So, you know, funny things happen. You see things. You feel different. Because your brain is essentially in a dreamlike state. It's essentially in a dreamlike state. Now, psychedelics 
in the 60s and 70s, people were doing a lot of LSD. The notion that, you know, you could become a total burnout was a real thing. You know, if you do excessive amounts of LSD, you do excessive amounts of psilocybin, you do excessive amounts of any of these drugs, what you find is that people start carrying over those new space-time associations or how the world works or kind of odd new ways of thinking. They bring it back to the normal non-psychedelic trip states. And that's why they'll come up to you and start talking and having what are called clang associations. You know, they'll say, oh, there's an interesting cup up. Oh yeah, the other day I was thinking about up a lot. And the conversation kind of starts drifting. It's because their brain has rewired to some extent. Gotcha. Because of all that use. So there was a long period of time in which psychedelics were not very much around. People weren't talking about them very much. And then a couple things happened. One is they started some, the, the so-called MAP studies. And then there's the, um, the work being done at Hopkins looking at mainly psilocybin magic mushrooms is a common, common way to refer to them um, in terms of uh, late life um, depression. And it turns out that um, the, the data we're encouraging and that should be no surprise. It's a ser- these things promote serotonin. We know that there are other uh, drugs that promote serotonin that are used for, for depression. So it's not terribly surprising. Generally, when people are navigating towards psychedelics, it's the idea that it's the thing that could change everything. Okay, it's that you take them and everything's going to be different. And they are powerful. They bathe the brain in chemicals that allow whatever happens during that psychedelic journey to really, some of that gets reinforced and brought back into your regular life. So that can be good if that's done in a therapeutic setting where someone is guiding that experience, perhaps. It can also be bad if you know, you're rewiring your brain in kind of non-specific ways. So it's the lack of specificity that bothers me. Okay. The other thing that bothers me, and, and look, I'll just be very clear. I don't know Michael Pollan, who wrote, you know, How to Change Your Mind. Um, but I do know this. I do know that he's not a scientist. Okay? Right. He's very smart. Right? I think he's my neighbor. In the, you know, I live, in, I live in the East Bay. I think he's my neighbor. He's very smart. He knows a lot about food. He very good very, author. Very successful book about food. But, you know, I think that the languaging and the... And the um, the conversation around something as serious as modifying your brain chemistry and wiring is one that I would have liked to see more physicians involved in or scientists involved in. And not a, I'm not saying I should have been not involved selfishly, in but seriously, yeah, leave he, it to the experts. I mean, somebody made a lot of money on that book and, oh, yeah. and making money isn't a crime, but I think people took that book. Many people didn't even read it. Most people just said, oh, psychedelics are really helping people. I'm going to take them. Well, that's just yeah. what we do, right? That, you what you do. read the cover of the book and you're like, oh, this is really good. Hey, Michael right. Pollan wrote it. He's done some really cool things. It, All right, I'll try it as well. Exactly. And then without the specificity that you're kind of pointing to where it could be impactful if it's got this specific nature to it. Right. So what are you doing during that psychedelic journey? So that that's one one important question. And um you know, and, and in fairness, you know, I don't want to pick on Michael Pollan, but um, I, I live in the, in the East Bay in Oakland, Berkeley area. You know, we can walk through Berkeley together and I can point out a lot of people that have done a lot of psychedelics and they're not right. They're not moving through the physical laws of the universe, meaning cars, buses, conversations, um, relationships in ways that are functional. And that's on the far excessive end. So 
are we going to see a fallout from this? I, I don't think so. I think that it's exciting and encouraging that people are thinking about how to modify brain chemistry in order to change their brain. That's great. I'm happy that people, if nothing else, the psychedelic movement, if we, if, uh, you know, this wave of the psychedelic movement anyway, is queuing people up to the fact that the brain is a plastic organ that can change in adulthood. So I'm getting my way in, in the fact that um, I want people to understand and appreciate that these magnificent features about the brain. But, I'm more interested in how people can change their brain without the use of psychedelics. But A, I think they will be a clinical tool, a, a pretty widespread clinical tool soon. I think that they should be used in a setting in which, if people are going to use them, I think they shouldn't be used. I want to uh, take that statement back. If people are going to use them, they should be used in a setting that is really geared towards directed change. Um, just non-specifically creating plasticity in your brain is undoing uh, probably a lot of good things also. That's my concern. Okay. And so I don't think it should be the first line of entry. That That's my strong bias. Now, these are all my personal biases. Here's why. The people that I see are most effective over long periods of time in life, not just scientists, but athletes, people from all realms, men, women, children, et cetera, get very, very good at learning how to acquire new new skills get very, very good at taking care of what we call our baselines. So we talked about baselines and trampolines. So let's just talk about baselines for a second. Baselines are the things that are going to support brain health that one should be doing all the time. This is a central component of that, of the sort of made for program that I talked about before. And it's something that we don't uh, talk about enough. We don't talk about enough because everyone wants that trampoline. I want that trampoline. Hey, just what a... And you see it all the time, yeah. like hashtag level right. up. Actually, exactly. And on the one hand, I'm telling, you know, your listeners, you know, focus, lean in hard, create a sense of play, create a sense of competition, create a sense of excitement, and that will serve plasticity. So, and on the other hand, I'm saying, well, okay, but then do a lot of little things that on the face of them might seem boring in order to get change. You need both. You need both. So, and these are, you're talking about simple routines, habits to right. establish baselines. Right. So if, if we were to c sort of put all this together, cause I know we've been covering a lot of territory. If we've been, if we were to put all this together, we'd say that the, the baseline behavior. So first of all, quality sleep and deep rest. Number one pillar of health is going to be quality sleep and deep rest. And everybody's pointing to that now. Finally, everybody's, everybody's talking about sleep as being the foundational, the fundamental element to everything else falling in alignment. That's right. I mean, Matt Walker being, you know, and uh, Sachin, Matt Walker at Berkeley, Sachin Panda who um, at the Salk Institute, probably being the most um, visible of, of the scientists talking about this now. Um, my good friend, and he's also on the Made for Advisory Board, uh, Samer Hattar, who's, who runs the chronobiology unit at the National Institutes of Health, would say the same thing, that getting quality sleep is fundamental to brain health, plasticity, um, and everything, really. Just everything. Immune system, everything. It's when your nervous system and your whole body Sense of well-being, having patience, right. resilience, all at, of it. All of it. And it's because in sleep, there's just so much cellular repair. And of course, for the intermittent fasters, it's also a period where fasting is very easy because you're asleep. Not conscious, <laughs> That's true. Right? So we, if nothing else, you could just sleep more to get to fast longer. Um, the, so sleep itself is fundamental. Um, and one thing about plasticity, sleep is when the plasticity actually occurs. Most people don't know this, but that, you know, you trigger the learning through that, that, those focus bouts through the repeated behaviors, but you consolidate it, meaning the neurons actually change their connectivity 
change their connections. You form new synapses. They get stronger during sleep and not during REM sleep. It's during slow wave sleep. Okay. So the deep sleep. So sleeping is when you, when all that happens, it's kind of like going to the gym. I always say, you know, like in the gym, because of the, the additional blood flow to the muscles, you get a glimpse into uh, what's going to happen later, which, ha- but the, the hypertrophy, the state. hypertrophy, it's state, like, I want right. to look like this all the time. Exactly. So people get a glimpse into, you know, how they're going to look if they were to continue the behavior. Right. So that's okay. kind of, but the change actually happens outside the gym, right? You know, fundamentally you're not changing the, you're not the, the fibers don't hypertrophy in the gym, the hypertrophy during rest. So that's why rest and recovery is so heavily emphasized in the strength training and, and, um, hypertrophy world. Um, also true on an endurance run, you know, when your lungs are burning and you're really pushing hard, it's the next run where you see the benefits of that. There has to be some period of time in between. So the same thing with brain plasticity. So in deep sleep. Now, anytime we emphasize the sleep conversation, there's now um, the additional problem, which is now there's anxiety about sleep. So now people are afraid they're not getting their sleep and they're afraid they're going to have dementia. <laughs> Let me be really clear. We're putting ourselves and, in a pickle here. Yeah, and, and it sounds like I'm trying to go to battle with like Michael Pollan and, and, um, and Matt Walker and all the Berkeley folks. Um, you, you know, there is a Stanford-Berkeley competition, but that's not what this is about. I, I live on that side of the bay and I, and I went to Cal. So here's the deal. Sleep is super important, super important. However... If you have one or a couple nights bad night bad sleep or poor sleep, you are not necessarily going to be demented. You're not going to have dementia. You're you're not going to dissolve into a puddle of tears. Okay, it's at the fourth and fifth nights that you start dissolving into a puddle of tears. To get, to become neurotic about getting sleep it is basically undercutting the whole idea. So people should be focusing on getting better, deeper sleep. Things that tend to help that is not eating too close to bedtime having a regular waking time. Um, there are a lot of things around that. Um, Matt talks about melatonin. Melatonin is good for falling asleep, but it doesn't enhance the depth or duration of sleep. It's actually a hormone that's used. I, most people don't know this, but it's a hormone that's used to suppress puberty. It has effects on the on the sex steroid hormone axis, so testosterone and estrogen that are very powerful. So melatonin should we be careful while taking melatonin personally i'll just tell you personally i would not I'm a, take i'm a big melatonin user. personally i would not take melatonin okay personally I, that's just me for myself because it's it affects so many other things in the hormone okay access. i would not take it um i'll be happy to talk about supplements that can improve sleep that i take um because they're they are out there and they are quite uh, in many cases quite uh powerful um so two things that people can do to improve their sleep in addition to the things I talked about before, or learn how to go into deep rest. So one thing that my laboratory is, is studying and that I personally do is, is uh, practices that allow you to get better at sleeping. If sleep is so important, it's like this vital thing. It's the pillar of everything. We can't just tell people sleep more or sleep better because people, even if they're tracking their sleep, they're becoming neurotic now about their sleep because my lab works on stress and fear. People are telling me like, I'm, I'm, you know, sleep is so key. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to, if I get one blast of fluorescent light in the middle of the night, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to mess up my nervous system. So let's just kind of put things into bins in terms of behaviors, but let's just make sure that we talk about, there are practices that get people better at falling and staying asleep. So you can get better at sleeping. So a couple, couple do's, a couple don'ts around sleep. One, um, 
yes, avoid screen and blue light exposure late at night. Certainly between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. Work at from NIH, from Samar Hattar and, um, and David Burson's lab, shows that, that blue light exposure between the hours of midnight and 4, 4 a.m. repeatedly, not just one night, but repeatedly, so looking at your phone in the middle of the night, does lead to depressive-like symptoms. It's messing you up. There's no question. The other one is... So if you happen to wake up in the middle of the night having a hard time going to sleep, like picking up your phone and reading a book, it's a big no-no. It's a big no-no. Okay. It's a big no-no. Uh, a real book. Uh, yellow light is probably okay. Use the the filters that are put into most iPhones, I think Android phones too, that, that are blue light filters. Um, screen it, that really... The blue light is what resets your circadian clock. It's making you jet lag. It's messing you up. It's promoting cortisol secretion because it thinks you want to wake up, but the rent, then your organs in your body aren't caught up to that. It's messing you up. So just avoid that screen exposure. Now, if you have to stay up late studying or if you, you know, have an emergency call, you're going to be fine. Got to do what you yeah. got to do. That's the other thing is that the nervous system is resilient. One night isn't going to, you know, screw you up forever. Um, two nights in a row. It's the repeated behavior. Again, um, the theme's starting to fall out. The next thing around sleep is... Yeah, it does seem that not eating too close to sleep is probably a good idea for getting into deep sleep. But, you know, you have a couple almonds before sleep or you eat a dessert once on a Saturday and, you, and then you fall asleep, not at the end of the world. There's work out of Stanford um, Sleep Lab, um, and I think out of UPenn also, that shows that how positively you anticipate the next day actually impacts your depth and quality of sleep. So that's a purely psychological thing, but that's sort of like, you know, if you're looking forward to life, those, even those short bouts of sleep can be, can be very renewing. And I've actually had some of the, the best performing days after a night of poor sleep. So if people are, you know, it's your wedding night or you're going out doing something fun, like you can still go out and party. This is a, this is a, we're talking about averages here. Right. Okay. The other one. So it, in yeah. general, that last one would be your outlook. It's, yeah. it's kind of your outlook on the next day. I've got something that I'm really excited about. I got an interview that we're going to be doing like life's really good. I don't need necessarily as much sleep to get good quality sleep. That's right. And that's something a lot of people aren't talking about. I think those data are really interesting because it, it just shows like the psychological interplay is, is really there. Because a lot of people are thinking like if they don't get their eight hours, they're just going to like that they're a mess. And like, come on, you know, that there is a part of me that says, you know, like I, there, I, pu I pulled many all-nighters in my career. I still pull the occasional, you know, 2 a.m. finishing up deadline kind of stuff. You're fine. You're, you're, you, you, we can okay. all do it. Um you just want your, like nutrition, you know, 80% 80, 80 of your intake should be good quality food. And if you, you know, or 90%, you know, the 10%, 20% isn't going to wreck you, especially if you're regular about the good behaviors. The other one is get better at sleeping. And I'm very excited about tools to access deep rest and recover sleep outside of sleep. So I fundamentally disagree based on the literature that you can't recover sleep. Because what you I, do hear that all the time, I can never go back and make up for lost sleep. I, I would love to to sit down with the. There's this tradition in academia called journal clubs, where students and postdocs sit down. And you read the papers. Every every real scientist is afraid of journal of, of what people might say in their journal clubs because that's where like <laughs> your peers are really. Okay. And the students are always trying to. They're, they're the harshest. The students are the harshest. Um, you know, I was trying to, to prove themselves. Um, I think they're just, we train young scientists to be skeptical and they're, and you know, you want a healthy degree of skepticism. And as you mature, you realize just how hard this, this science thing really is. <laughs> and so you tend to 
um, you tend to look at things a little bit more holistically and you go, well, like it's really like they did their best and you realize that not every paper is going to solve everything kind of thing. But the students, yeah, they're, they're harsh. And so I would love to do a journal club um, on some of these papers. But my read of these papers is that you can recover certain aspects of sleep by placing the body and brain into deep rest. Now, that isn't to say you can sleep two hours a night and then make up for it with a meditation session. But my lab's been exploring, and we're not a sleep lab, I should say. We work mainly on stress and on nerve regeneration. But we've been exploring some practices that um, in the common phraseology would be called, um, there's, a, there's a practice that's very intriguing called yoga nidra, N-I-D-R-A. It's sometimes spelled N-I-D-R-E. It literally means yoga sleep. Now, if you don't like yoga, this is definitely the practice for you because <laughs> the only thing you have to do is lie down and listen to a script. You don't have to do anything. Um, in the corpse pose. In the corpse pose. I actually do it with my arms crossed. So this is a okay. practice I do every day for 10 minutes or 20 minutes a day. I do it in the morning if I wake up earlier than I want to. So if I wake up and I because my alarm told me I have to get up and go and I don't feel like I slept enough, I do 10 to 20 minutes of yoga nidra and it drops you back into a very deep state of relaxation and often right back into sleep. If I haven't slept well, I'll do one in the afternoon. So this is a practice that my lab, we've been, you know, we do a number of, of recordings of, of physiology in the nervous system and the body, breathing, heart rate, pupil size, et cetera. People go into very deep states of relaxation if they do yoga nidra. Just to refer your listeners, um, you can access yoga nidra scripts on YouTube. There's one, if you put in yoga nidra 10 minute, there's a 10 minute one that's really good. There's a, um, that I use, there's a 20 minute one. Um, hopefully my lab will be able to post some of the ones that we're testing soon. So people can just get them as a free resource. Um, those tend to be a little bit longer. They involved all yoga nidra. I said, you don't have to do anything, but you don't have to move, but there are a few cues that you follow. The first thing is it, um, the script has you sort of do a kind of body scan where you move your conscious awareness around your body, but it also involves all yoga nidra involves doing long exhale emphasized breathing. So long exhales. Now, my lab is also studying respiration. I'm very interested in breath work. That's a kind of separate conversation. But exhale emphasized breathing. So in other words, where your exhales are longer than your inhales, tends to blow off a lot of carbon dioxide and put you into a relaxed state and helps you relax your nervous system. The brain goes into a kind of pseudo sleep-like state. What I've found is that doing this 10 minutes a day, most days, some, maybe five days a week, not every day, allows me to fall asleep within less than a minute. Or, and if I'm feeling stressed and my mind is racing, I'm able to sh somehow shift over into kind of sensation and do a few long exhale um, exhales, and I just, I'm, I'm out. So my depth So you are the guy who, when your head hits a pillow, you're out. I'm out. Yeah, and um, there's this weird principle of human psychology where the insomniac has to wake up the person that can sleep and tell them they can't sleep. <laughs> can we please eliminate that behavior? I don't know what that... That's hurting everybody. That, that's my know, house. Yeah, I don't know why that there's, there's some... I'm not a psychologist. So, so yoga nidra, we could... You know, I realized that as long as things were going to be housed in these names, they weren't going to get out as broadly. So we have this deep relaxation protocol that we're testing in the lab, but it's really a, a kind of derivative of yoga nidra. And what's great about it is um, it has no, you know, for, because sometimes people are kind of averse to yoga or Eastern traditions because of the kind of like spiritual leanings. None of that. It's just exhale emphasized breathing. You know, you know, you lie down and they, they actually tell you, try not to fall asleep. And then what's cool about that is you're learning to relax your nervous system 
in wakefulness, which itself is very powerful for limiting stress. So this is totally different than meditation. This is not, you know, lotus position, third eye center, concentrating on your breathing. This is just listening to a script. Now, the reason it's interesting is also that, you know, Stanford Department of Psychiatry has a guy there named David Spiegel, um, who's a, you know, MD psychiatrist who's been studying hypnosis for a long time and the capacity for, hip for hypnosis to not stage hypnosis, but clinical hypnosis as a tool for smoking cessation, as a tool for dealing with trauma. And hypnosis incorporates certain breathing patterns as well as other things, vision tools of narrowing your focus. And it's a very effective clinical tool done properly. Um, so there's a crossover now. We're seeing deep relaxation as a state that's powerful in sleep for getting brain change. Deep relaxation in, in hypnosis no sleep, but in hypnosis, powerful for getting brain change. This scientific data supports that. Spiegel's work, not mine. Deep relaxation outside of sleep, potentially to reinforce learning and recover some of the cognitive effects that you might have missed out on from not having enough sleep. So I've personally found that I never really get enough sleep. One day a week I might get to sleep in. Generally, I'm sleep deprived. But I do this practice 10 minutes a day or sometimes 20 minutes a day. And it has been an absolute game changer. It's completely free. It takes 10 minutes. And ideally, you would elevate your feet by about 15 degrees. So you put them up on a pillow. There's really good evidence that um, sleeping with your feet elevated just a little bit perfuses the brain more with the neurochemicals that are required to clear out some of the cellular debris. Oh, I've been doing this. I have one yeah. of those like geriatric beds where it's split my wife's on one side and I'm on the other and I put my feet up just kind of naturally. I've realized that I sleep better like that. Yeah. And people, um, I've talked to some people in, in various career paths where they don't, they have to recover quickly and they're, you know, in high intensity worlds. Um, and just even lying down on your back with your feet elevated, even if you're awake and you're reading, even if you're checking your phone, although it'd be better if you were doing a deep relaxation protocol, it's probably helping with some of the brain perfusion. This is why on planes, when you sleep on a plane, it, that your sleep sucks. Oh, it's In brutal. addition to all the other distractions, I keep, I'm hoping for the day that they have, uh, you know. It's the, an inversion the, it's an table. inversion <laughs> table. Everyone's going to be knocked out. So that tends to, so those are some actionable things. So feet inverted, have a deep relaxation protocol. We can put the, the link in the show notes to the ones that I like. Cool. Um, because the 10 minute and 20 minute one, uh, supplements. Okay. I don't have any, um, stake in this. Um, I do consult for a supplement company made for, uh, no, no, excuse me, made for, I do consult for made for, I, I do consult for a supplement company, which is smarty pants, but that's, this is the, the things I'm going to talk about are separate from that. Okay. They're, they're really, um, uh, they're really things that, I think any of the sources that you would find out there would be clean sources would, would be, would be fine. Um, I can only talk about what, what I do. These aren't prescriptions, but many people find, and I have found that taking 200 to 600 milligrams of magnesium, 30 minutes to an hour before sleep really helps get into sleep. I do that. The kind of magnesium is probably important. Uh, magnesium malate, M-A-L-A-T-E can be used during the daytime. It doesn't have much of a sedative effect. It's mainly going to replenish the magnesium in muscle from exercise. So that's kind of daytime magnesium. Magnesium citrate can work very well for the sleep purpose. It tends to be a laxative, which for some people, that's not some a Some people, thing. it's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, magnesium threonate, T-H-E, uh, sorry, T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, threonate, Um about 300 milligrams is, has a sedative effect. It's also neuroprotective. There's really good evidence that it's neuroprotective. 
um, theanine, okay? Theanine, which is T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E, um, 100 to 200 milligrams. Be careful. It can ma- really make your dreams more intense. Sleepwalkers oh, probably fun. should stay away from it. I, I, I do 200 milligrams um, along with the magnesium threonate. Um, theanine is a GABA agonist. Indirectly, it kind of promotes the, pr- the formation of, uh, of GABA in the brain. Rather than just taking GABA itself? Yeah, I would not take neurotransmitters. I would not take GABA. I would not take, I would not take anything too close to the thing you want. We can talk about this more. Okay. But I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't take anything too close to the thing you want. You're better off taking the precursor. So theanine is a precursor that eventually leads to the formation of more GABA. When you might say, well, that's not as close to the, the end point. But you tend to sh- shut down pathways when you work close to the end point. Okay. This is why people who you know, supplement excessive amounts of testosterone, they shut down their own production. Whereas people that d- take things that promote kind of healthy um, testosterone precursors, uh, you know, you're, you're not going to get that uh, feedback regulation. Okay. Okay. I'm not here to talk, like, talk about that. There are ways to do that without shutdown, but that's a whole other conversation. That's not my expertise. Um, taking GABA itself, I wouldn't recommend. You can actually buy GABA in drinks at 7-Eleven now. It's crazy. But I would not do that. It's a powerful neurotransmitter, and um, it, it's involved in regulating things like epileptic seizures and things like that. I wouldn't recommend doing that. But the theanine and the magnesium three and eight. And then for men, not women, there's a compound that most people don't know about called apigenin, A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N. You probably have to buy it on Amazon. It's a little bit harder to find. This is a, the um, substance that's enriched in chamomile tea, although chamomile tea doesn't have a whole lot of it. You have to drink a lot of chamomile tea, and then you probably wake up in the middle of the night. Got to go pee all the time. Got to go pee. Um, 50 milligrams of apigenin. It's a, it's a sedative, uh, a natural sedative. Again, I'm not promoting or recommending people do this. This is just what I take. And why not yeah. women for that one? Um, it's an estrogen inhibitor. Okay. Yeah. It's a pretty potent estrogen inhibitor, which for men is probably a good thing, and for women is not, not something probably they want to get into. Um, so that combination tends to, well, it, I feel like it hit me. I got hit over the head. I'm gone. 30 minutes after I take that cocktail, I'm, I'm toast. That's and, it. And the depth of my sleep is much greater. So I can sleep less time and I can, you know, and be functional during the day and yet the depth of my sleep. Is yeah, that's what I'm finding yeah. is I'm unable really to get past an hour of the deep sleep. I track my sleep every night and most nights, 42 minutes, 50 minutes tops. I'm I, guessing I, it's the melatonin. You think so? Yeah. So okay. melatonin is, is the, I don't want to go too far off track, but just this usually is sufficient to scare people. I have nothing against the melatonin industry. Um, if I receive a bomb package from the melatonin industry, I, I'll, I'll know it was you, or you guys. <laughs> um, but basically, here's the deal. Melatonin is naturally made by the pineal gland, which is this gland in the middle of your head, um, the middle of your brain. It is inverse. The amount of melatonin is inversely related to the amount of daylight. So it's the way that your brain and nervous system understand how long or short the days are. So when days are short, you get very long melatonin pulses. It tells your whole system to kind of shut down and hibernate at the extremes. Um, in animals is much more robust than in humans at the poles, like up in Denmark, it, you know, you get long melatonin pulses at night because, um, days are really short in the winter and you get seasonal affective, um, disorders, you get depression, you get shut down of the reproductive axis in, this is usually the one that, that gets people in, in, I've done these experiments when I was a master student at Berkeley. If you take an animal that's in long days, a male animal, its testicles are, are like a rodent. It's testicles are large. You put it into uh, lo- short days, long nights, or 
you give it melatonin, and its testicles shrink to the size of a grain of rice. No kidding. Yeah. Now, I'm out. That doesn't happen to humans because we have other regulatory pathways on reproduction. But you're talking about a primordial system and a hormone that was designed to signal very slowly changes in day length. And so the idea of taking it all kind of in one bolus, it's not going to shut down your reproductive axis. But you're playing a game over time that is just it's a little unclear what the outcomes are. So I would stay away from melatonin. Um, I have no comment on Ambien and, and prescription sleep drugs because some people really need them. Um, they're just, I don't think they should be the first line of defense if you're having trouble sleeping. So first line of defense would be learn to relax, right? Have a practice where you learn to relax. We've overemphasized, I believe, these are my opinions. I think we've overemphasized mindfulness and meditation. I don't want to be mindful when I'm trying to fall asleep. I want to be mindless. I want to be of no mind. I want to be relaxed. And so teaching your system how to relax and go into sleep better is great. Being able to recover some sleep by waking up too early or in the middle of the night, do a yoga nidra script. Even if you can't sleep, you're putting your body into a state of deeper relaxation. So, and then the supplements that we've been describing are not necessary, but for some people, especially people who are dependent on sleeping pills and want to get off sleeping pills or alcohol as a sleep aid, which limits the depth of sleep for sure. Or marijuana. Or marijuana. These might be useful. Okay. These might be useful. So that's my pitch on sleep. Um, I'm not, I don't run a sleep lab, but we do study relaxation. I, these are things that I've have a lot of personal experience with and, uh, you know, I've and I think what Matt Walker is putting out there is terrific. I think what Samer Hatar is putting out there is terrific. I think what Sachin Pan is putting out there is terrific. So I'm not trying to un- undercut any of their messaging. I think everything I'm saying is complementary with their messaging. Okay. If not, I'd be happy to, you know, we can have a good good um, scientific fight. I, so I, I don't want to have a physical So fight. as far as baselines, number one, quality sleep. Where do you go after that? Okay. This is interesting. So this is mainly pulling from the work of um, a guy named John Rady, who's a psychiatrist at Harvard, and he's also on the... Um, made for advisory. So a big part of the, um, you know, the, the base of that program is born out of some of the things I'm about to say. I'm paraphrasing John. And I, I, if I make some errors, I, I apologize, but I think generally right. Uh, John incidentally wrote a book called Spark, which is about I'm plasticity. reading it right now. So he, someday, I call him the great John Rady because someday we're going to look back and we're going to say, okay, there were these scientists that discovered developmental plasticity. Their names were Hugo and Wiesel. They actually got a Nobel Prize for that. There were the scientists that discovered adult plasticity, mainly a guy named Mike Merzenich at UCSF and a guy named Norm Weinberger who was down at uh, UC Irvine. They should probably win a Nobel too. Then there's the person who early on started saying, hey, there's plasticity in the adult brain, folks. You should be doing various things. And that's John Rady. And John's a clinician. You know, He's an MD. Um, he's done amazing work in so many fields. And he talks about, in Spark, he talks about what it, you need for plasticity, focus, play, attention. I'm just basically repeating everything John Rady said and not as well as John would say it. So check out the book if, um, and if you like. And John's just terrific. Um, so the other elements of baselines, of improving your baseline. This is interesting. So a few years ago, this would have been seen as kind of wishy-washy, but now we can back it up with some real science. Social connection. Sitting down and having a face-to-face conversation with somebody, a meal, uh, you know, a playing ball with your kid or, listen, or listening to your kid tell you about their day or um, reading with them, doing face-to-face connection, friends, family. It sounds kind of loose, loose and um, kind of soft. You know, it's not hard neuroscience until recently. There was a paper published in the journal Cell, which is a terrific, 
journal. Like for scientists, these are like Super Bowl rings, Science Nature Cell. Those are like our Super Bowl rings. Showing that there's a set of molecules that secreted from the brain under conditions of social isolation when people aren't spending, when animals aren't spending enough time with other animals of their same species that lead to inflammation, degradation of, of neuronal tissue, and just all the bad stuff. And it, when you see this, you think, Oh, it makes so much sense, right? Nature wants to put us together in order to propagate our species. It's not just about reproduction. It's also about all the social connection that comes from that. So sleep, social connection. We talk about nutrition, and, um, quality nutrition, something that, um, you know, we all know we should be doing. Hydration, right? Drinking, drinking water. Hydration is an interesting one. Water itself hydrates cells, and we always hear, oh, you know, more than 70% of our cells are we're made up of water. There's another thing, too, which is that just drinking water creates more alertness, more uh, arousal in the, in the nervous components of the nervous system that create alertness. So just dr the act of drinking water is making you more alert, not just the hydration No itself. kidding. Yeah. And it was funny. We talked about... Um, urination and the fact that uh it, it creates alertness so one of the most stressful things is having to go to the bathroom and not uh and not being able to like you're stuck in a car you're stuck in an airplane and you, you can't get up the reason for that there's actually a direct circuit from the bladder to the brainstem that creates alertness so that stress is a real thing and and it's hard to focus on anything else when when you have to do that this is a good reason to um limit to drink drink water in the morning and in, in the daytime and to drink less water as the day goes on um, unless you've done something dehydrating during the day, of course. So hydration, nutrition, social connection, um, quality sleep. Then you start getting into the kind of behaviors that um, are a little more specific. It starts looking more like things ab like peaks above baseline. So exercise. Everybody, right? It's very clear that everybody should be doing at least three to four days a week of for about 45 minutes of some form of cardiovascular exercise and i frankly i would much rather go to the gym or do a martial art or something than when i say go to the gym i'd much rather lift weights or do a martial art than i would run although running and swimming i've, I've developed a uh you know uh a joy in doing those um but it's just very clear that when you perfuse your system with blood like that that you're improving brain health. is that what it's all about it's it really just the is. pumping of the blood it like really the vigorous pumping yeah. of the blood yeah cardiovascular health i mean you know, proper LDL ratios, brain health, you know, um, pushing dementia off. Um, there's, an, you know, anecdotally, the, I know many Nobel Prize winning and other highly accomplished scientists that are still brain active, body active into their 80s and 90s. It's wild. And they swim and run Swim or run or play tennis, right? Yeah, a lot of older, high-functioning people that I see are actually also triathletes, yeah. like amateur triathletes, yeah. but that's a big part of their program is Absolutely. waking up every single morning. I live next door to a couple of professors, and one of the professors wakes up every single morning, goes for an hour swim in the bay, does her bike, and then she's still very vibrant. Yeah, absolutely. Um, David Sinclair said it. I didn't say it, but I'll just poach his statement a little bit and credit him that when you look at people who are very healthy and vital into their 70s, 80s, and 90s, they earned it. They did They did things to earn it. They didn't overeat. They, um, at least they didn't do it too often. You know, if they overate, it wasn't very often. They are very active. They're socially connected. They're curious. Um, they earned it. And of course, there's supplements for longevity. That's Sinclair's territory, not mine. We could talk about it a little bit. But um, the, 
it's just very clear that regular cardiovascular exercise of about 40, 30 to 40, ideally 45 to 60, but you know, that's tough. 30 to 45 minutes, four days a week, 45 minutes being the target, get your heart rate up. Um, it's clear also that to maintain strength and flexibility, that some degree of resistance training is good. So you need all that, you need all that. And it really enhances brain health. It really enhances body health, which is such a tide change from how it was when I was coming up. I actually used to sneak off to the gym. I would hide the fact that I went to the gym because I felt guilty, like in graduate school. That From the that scientific community? Oh, yeah. But I look at my colleagues, and some of them are very healthy and vibrant, and they're the ones that were that were and remain physically active. And a lot of the other ones, like, you know, guys, ladies, you, you, you're, you're now seeing the effects of that. I've lost a lot of my colleagues because they were excellent scientists, very smart, but just didn't take very good care of themselves. And some of them I lost for, you know, just because they had unfortunate genetic makeup, you know, cancers and things like that. But these things fit together. You really see it. And so people love to cite the example of, oh, well, I know someone who did everything right and they died of a heart attack. Or I know someone who did everything right and they still got dementia. But look, th- those are outliers in the in one direction. You, you, you see it all the time. People who don't have to do anything and they're phenomenal athletes and students, but they're very rare. Most people, you earn it. So, um those the neurochemicals that this your system is flooded with are great for repair they're great for mood um time of day and exercise is an interesting one so the data show that exercising early in the day is probably better for your overall health and metabolism and setting your metabolism and brain chemicals in the right direction exercising late in the day is probably better for performance like with yoga nidra i always say the best time is either first thing in the morning in the afternoon or any time of day <laughs> like let's 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 be fair like if you want to optimize great but that should never be an excuse you never want get it in when you can get it in when you can you never want that to become an excuse same thing with the supplements i don't want to overemphasize supplementation because you never want to lean on that too hard because then you know to the extent that you're not doing anything else because then if you know um then you don't have them recently i went on a trip my luggage got uh, lost and i didn't have my supplements i was in canada for five days doing a lot of work it was fine i fell asleep fine i was working hard during the day i got some exercise that you, you don't you never want to become dependent on, okay. a, on anything so sleep exercise social connection nutrition um the brain health and nutrition thing is an area nutrition is a funny one the, the, you know everyone wants to know what what to eat and what not to eat yes i think we generally know what not to eat you know, we shouldn't be consuming excessive sugar. Processed foods. Process, processed foods. There's a great paper out in the journal Cell that showed that weight gain and, and negative health markers actually increase from eating processed food in the equivalent caloric intake. Same calories. And macronutrients. So you're saying like same protein, fat, fat, carbohydrate ratios, but it's processed and the body just assimilates it differently and it turns into worse health outcomes than were you to take your eat whole foods doesn't mean you can't cook your foods or it has to be all raw but i think most people now agree and most scientists and nutritionists agree that the key thing is to find something that you can do consistently so i it sounds like i'm citing only studies out of stanford but i'm not but chris gardner did this big large-scale study um for the nutrition department of which diets work and which diets don't turns out they all work these are diets aimed towards weight loss um, so keto, uh, restricted time feeding, um, vegetarian, you know, high car, you know, carnivore, carnivore. Diet, they all work to, if people stick to them. Now, my response to that, and I, I don't know, Chris, I haven't really talked to him about this, but adherence to a protocol is key. So for me, for instance, 
I'd much rather not eat than eat half the muffin because I can't do half the muffin. You're an like, all-in guy. I'm in. If I yeah. eat like once I get once I get near that muffin, it's <laughs> it's, it's going gone. down. It's toast. It's like it's gone. It's just it's no it's nowhere to be found. Um, I'm ingesting it. So for you, you have to find the thing that you can stick to, and I think that's why so many people are gravitating towards intermittent fasting is because for a lot of people, just saying no, I'm fasting is easier. Yeah, than for a certain number of hours. Yeah, and especially because now a lot of the foods are so laden with things that increase appetite. So the food industry has uh, has laced food with a, a lot of the forms of sugar that increase appetite. So you, you want to eat more of it. Salt, sense. sugar, fat. It's Salt, highly palatable yeah. and people will just continue to consume it. Yeah. And in Europe, there's more an emphasis on, on glucose as a sweetener, which tends to create satiety or, or satisfaction. Whereas here we tend to rely on fructose and sucrose, which tend to increase appetite. So, um, you know, so... The intermittent fasting thing is really interesting. Um, I find it hard to fast for long periods of time, but there's very good evidence from Sachin Panda's lab out of the Salk. Of, you know, a colleague, I used to be down there in San Diego, UCSD Salk, and um, he's a great colleague, very smart guy, showing that if you limit the time, in, uh, the time across the 24-hour cycle in which animals eat, but not even the amount that they eat, they, so in other words, limiting your eating to a particular phase of the 24-hour cycle, um, health markers improve which is amazing, right? But it's what it's allowing is a period of cellular repair. When you're not ingesting anything, it's allowing a period where cells are getting cleaned up. And so um, very interesting. There are people like Walter Longo or pushing longer fasts. You've got, you know, Atia talks about fasting. So it's not really my territory. But I think when I look at the data, as a neuroscientist, I go, look, yeah, like I know how to read a scientific paper and th this looks like good science. Does it mean we should all be intermittent fasting? Not necessarily. Some people just get Some people really, can't handle it. Some people get really hangry in the morning if they're not eating. And so they, they do better eating early in the day, not late in the day. But again, we're talking about baselines where, you know, these are the things that are going to provide what I call, you know, sort of buoyancy and support for your overall health and well-being. They're going to position you to go for the sort of peak stuff for brain change. And those peak things um, we talked about focus and attention trying to develop a kind of sense of play we talked about psychedelics and the fact that they create an environment for the brain to change but it's very non-specific so that what can change is very very can be a little bit mysterious it's very hard to get directed outcomes um is there a sense with the psychedelics that you take it and you can potentially see yourself differently and then you can go maybe achieve that different outlook that you have. Like you can get beyond your kind of current construct Yeah. with the, with the aid of the psychedelics. Is that maybe yeah. what it's all about? Yeah. Let's return a little bit to psychedelics. Cause I feel like we, we hit on that and then I kind of, and then I kind of blazed past some important points there that, that I think in fairness to what psychedelics are possibly going to be able to do for us positively. So a lot of mental health issues um, are, you know, they're, they're neurochemical, there are psychological components, there are lifestyle components, um, but a lot of mental health issues for people, depression, um, they have to do with the kind of perception of self and the idea that if A, then B, it's about contingencies. If I try and get another job, I'm just going to get fired again. If I try this, I'm just going to fail again. One of the hallmark features of depression and anxiety is that they tend to change people's perception of time. Uh, this is something I really hope that the neuroscience community is going to work more on. They change the perception of time such that people think that, look, even if I feel better, it's going to come back. Those feelings of depression are going to come back. Even if I'm not anxious now, it's going to come back. Now, one thing to do is to arm yourself with tools, especially for anxiety, where, you know, 
things like panoramic vision, things like long exhale breathing, things like yoga nidra, um, and getting all your baselines right, you can learn how to govern your anxiety, how to manage your anxiety. We have not yet learned how to manage our feelings very well. Most people just don't know how to do that, especially in, we think of emotions as like, again, it's contradictory. We're told you got to feel your feelings. And yet we're told your feelings aren't real information. They're just feelings. Well, I hate contradictory stuff like that. For a scientist, that's incredibly frustrating. It's too gray. It's too gray. It's like if this, then that, and, and, and also this, and also that. I like principles, and the nervous system works in principles. It doesn't like contradictions. It doesn't work in contradictions. So mental disease and just feelings of depression tend to hijack our sense of time and make us feel like whatever bad thing is happening, even if we were to feel better, it's going to come back again. So a lot of um, the antidepressants are are it's not a coincidence that they're geared toward changing neurochemistry like serotonin and dopamine and things of that sort. And psychedelics have this property that they tend to give people a window into a different relationship between space and time. And what I mean by that is not outer space. I'm not talking like Neil deGrasse Tyson kind of outer space. I'm talking about literal space, like the space between us sitting on the either side of this table, this physical space that you're in. People that let's just say at the far extremes, like suicide, people that tend to be very, very depressed. It's almost like the depression and their whole perception is is like inside themselves. They're not able to see outside themselves. And when they see outside themselves, they tend to superimpose their emotions like, wow, that sunset looks so sad. And you hear this stuff and you're like, wow, like they're really, their internal world is being imposed on the external world. Like they... You know, I frankly, you know, I mean, I think we've all been in states like this at times, right? It is a very childlike state. When you're a child or a baby and you're upset, people can put a teddy bear in your face and jump around and everything's great. And And you you, smack it out of the way. You can't be soothed. You can't get out of yourself. You can't be soothed. So a big part of being a functional adult and being healthy, mentally healthy, is the ability to recognize your feelings as internal and that they're real and and they're valid, but not valid to the extent that you want to superimpose them on life because there are these external events. Psychode- when people are in mental, mentally ill states, they seem locked in this regime of they're down in the dumps and they can't pull themselves out. And a big part of the way people describe psychedelics is being able to see new relationships between things like, oh, I'm not my feelings or, oh, my feelings are not, don't extend out of me onto everything else. People generally start to um, talk about their positive psychedelic experiences. There are negative ones, but their positive psychedelic experiences or experiences with antidepressants as being able to see what we call new contingencies. Oh, they sort of forget that they lost their job. They, they know it cognitively, but emotionally they say, oh yeah, I could try again. I could see new possibility. And what's really interesting here is that it comes right back to brain plasticity. There was a paper published in Science from a group in Italy, very, very good group, by a guy named Lamberto Maffei. And he said, what if we gave animals, uh, adult animals, that, whose brains are no longer plastic, right? We gave them fluoxetine, Prozac. And what he found was it reopened the ability for them to change their brains in response to experience. Now, I'm not saying everyone should run out and take Prozac, but what is Prozac? Prozac increases serotonin in the brain. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that the same drug that creates, that can relieve depression and, incre- and works by increasing serotonin uh, can create this window for plasticity. So 
plasticity is all about being able to see and realize new possibility. It's about any one of your listeners saying, okay, look, I'm in a place in life with my mental state or with my physical state. I just don't want to be there. It's almost impossible for all of us to visualize our perfect self and how we would be if we accomplish everything. So the idea should then be trust the practices that science has discovered and delivered. Trust that if you do if you start working on your baselines, good sleep, good nutrition, hydration, social connection, movement, and you decide, which we should all be doing anyway to live a long life for other reasons, and you pick up practice, like I'm just going to decide to do one thing. Like I'm going to decide to read one, one page of a book, one page. It might not even be a self-help book. It might just be a fiction book. I'm going to decide to read one page of a book per day. That itself is going to build now, the key on doing it the next day and the next day and the next day, and you are, through that focus, you're essentially taking a pill, but you're delivering the neurochemicals from inside. There is no external thing you're, the, the brain can put into itself to change. You're using, you're hijacking chemicals, you're use, utilizing chemicals that your brain and nervous system naturally make. And the most powerful way to do that is your power of attention and your power of drive. Now, with, with depressed people, the problem is the drive isn't there. And with people who have a hard time focusing, the focus isn't there. So sometimes they need some chemical assistance. And that's why I think psychedelics and antidepressants help kind of trampoline people up, get them into, into sort of forward motion. But we all have the capacity to do this. And once you do it once, you can build on it and build on it and build on it. And there's an element here that I want to just mention, which is self-reward. This is something that isn't talked a lot about. We think so much about the reward of winning a game, of a big cash payoff, of all the things that nature wired us for, you know, comfort, sex, food, warmth, all these things, you know, warmth when it's cold, cold cool when it's, when it's warm, thirst. Again, it's, the brain is very um, simple in terms of what it does. You can learn to reward yourself for any process. And people say, well, how do I do that? Okay, well, um, how do you self-reward? It turns out that one of the most powerful reward systems for plasticity is telling yourself, I'm headed in the right direction. It's not the same as saying, I got the big cash payoff. I got the Super Bowl ring. I got the marriage I wanted. I got the, you know, I got the success. But the, the, there are a couple ways that you can self-administer dopamine without ingesting anything. One is telling yourself, this is a step in the right direction. And this is why I think science has such an important role to play is like, I'm telling you, we don't know everything, but I'm telling you, this is what science says. You're, if you're doing a practice, even for a minute a day or two minutes a day or seven minutes a day, you are headed in the right direction. And you should reward that process by telling yourself, this is going to get me where I need to go. The other one is humor. And is that just the self-reward? Sorry to touch on yeah, that. Yeah. Is it simply saying that, reminding yourself that yeah. I am heading in the right direction? I'm going to get to where I want to go. That's right. Just and very simply. like That's right. Self-talk. That form of positive self-talk is perhaps one of the most powerful things that we have as, as humans. And I'm not trying to center back to something kind of, kind of soft and wishy-washy. This is a, an ancient form of getting better that led to where we are today. This is why we, have, we, we live in the amazing cities and structures that we have. This is the reason we have phones. like All the stuff that's seen as stressful is like re represent incredible accomplishments of, of human evolution. So the ability to self-reward and tell yourself, this is a step in the right direction. I might not be getting the result I want just yet, but it's a step in the right direction. It's tremendous. You know, the growth mindset 
is is anchored in this. This is Carol Dweck's discovery that there's a set of kids that just naturally seem to have this kind of enjoyment from challenge. You know, you probably this is probably what's being selected for in professional um, people who get into professional sports and are very like know how to lean into friction. People who make it into the SEAL teams. People who um, make it through uh, cancer treatment. They le- they learn how to self reward the little things. Now they're not walking around saying like, yeah, I put t- I laced up my shoes this morning, but they know how to build off these little steps. They and it's an internal process. It's a little vague, so I apologize. It's it's necessarily vague because everyone does it a little differently. Yeah, it's the growth versus the fixed mindset. That's right. It's a belief that you can be better. And Carol um, likes to say. Um, and I, I love this. She likes to say, if your positive self-talk is focused on the goal, you're probably wrong. So if I, you know, if I say, um, let's say I'm, I'm, let's use sports as an example. Let's say I'm badly down at the half, like badly down. And I say, we're winning. You say, we're not, we're not winning. We're losing, dude. We're, right. we're, we're losing. Like <laughs> you're delusional. That, that's not growth mindset. That's delusional. Yes. But if you say, look, every time I lean in, I'm, I'm leaning in the right direction. Something happens that's powerful, which is not just psychological. It's you get a dopamine drip. You, norepinephrine will hit, will, is associated with effort. Adrenaline is effort, but adrenaline without that dopamine hit, eventually you burn down. Your burn rate goes down. Oh. But dopamine can reset you. Now, one thing, and I don't want to comment about communities that I don't have any direct experience with, which include professional football and military, but if you talk to people who make it through very hard circumstances or even cancer treatment for that matter. They learn the power of appropriate dosing with humor. When things are at their absolute worst, yes. if somebody cracks a joke, everybody gets a lift. That is not a, 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 like a surprising phenomenon. For a neuroscientist, it's like it's a dopamine hit. It's like, and dopamine is replenishing. And the reason is that we have these ancient circuits in our brain that were designed for animals to be able to hunt by smell. Think about an animal that's navigating through its environment, has no smell. And it's like, I need to eat. I need to mate. I need to eat. It's going up, up some like, you know, trail or stream and it gets onto a scent and it's like, ah, now there needs to be something to keep it moving forward. And that something is a dopamine hit. Ah, you hit a milestone. You're on a reward point. And so then it continues. Now, let's say it goes down a path that isn't so good. It, it's going to then either be punished for that or it won't, it's not sensing that dopamine hit. So humans have this ability to consciously deliver our own dopamine hits just through thinking, which means that you can push yourself essentially through anything because dopamine amplifies you, meaning it gives you energy. This is why as important as sleep is, we all know that we could go two or three nights without sleep if you told yourself, I'm on track, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. If on the other yeah. side of this work and effort, it's going to be rewarded. Absolutely. So, and that's kind of speaks a little bit to willpower, doesn't it? It's like I can get through something if on the other side I'm going to get rewarded. And I guess what, from a neuroscientific standpoint, it kind of comes down to being rewarded with that dopamine. Yeah, and not only that, but so nor- norepinephrine or adrenaline, just pushing, just hard, hard driving, resilience, grit, mental toughness. They're great, but they're degradative over time. You will, you will get fatigued and you will burn out. The key is to, lay, to do that, first of all, on a set of baselines, sleep, good nutrition, all the stuff we mentioned before. So have a good solid have foundation, a good solid about, foundation you. about you, right? And then when in effort, 
whether or not it's short-term effort of the kind that I was talking about before, where you're just kind of focused on, okay, I'm going to, you know, um, learn a language or I'm going to spend more focused time, um, learning something, physical practice or mental practice inserted within that is reward the fact that you're leaning into something. It can be subtle. It doesn't have to be this intense grind. That dopamine reward is amplifying. It gives you energy and, and this is really, look, is a really key and, and it boosts the immune system. So one thing we haven't talked about is the immune system, but the nervous system governs the immune system. People, the, the nature designed us so that if we had to go long periods with famine or without food, or we had to fight for our survival, you can't afford to be sick, which is why we tend to get sick when we rest after a long period of intense activity. Because you you've can, let your guard down. You, you finally are resting. Your system is like, I need rest. So norepinephrine and stress, people, people think stress hurts the immune system. Stress enhances the function of the immune system in the short term. This is why things like, uh, it's sometimes called Wim Hof breathing, but the breathing where you do the opposite of what we talked about before, where you exhale a lot. But you, where you, so Wim Hof breathing or some of the more intense breathing, the ones where you're inhaling more. I don't want to do it into the microphone, but you're doing deep inhales and quick exhales. Yeah, it's really deep. intense. It's intense. You tend to get kind of lightheaded. You don't want to do it while driving, never in water. But it tends to give you this kind of buzz and this kind of energy. That has been shown in very solid scientific studies to recruit the immune system the adaptive immune system and the innate immune system mobilize in response to that. They say, why? Because you've got a lot of adrenaline in your system and it says infections coming. I'm ready for nights of no sleep, parenting. I don't know what your game schedule was. I don't, I don't uh, forgive me because I don't know the details of the NFL, but I don't know how many, like how many times a week would you play? Just Sunday. You play Sunday, but then all week you're Sunday, recovering. and then you may play Thursday, right. and then you may play the following Monday. Right. Yeah, right. twenty so, times a year. And if you're feeling kind of down, you can probably ramp yourself under like into a state a, where you're ready to go. It was amazing. I I actually never got sick during an NFL season. There you go. Not not once. And in the offseason. And during yeah, and I would yeah. get sick yeah. during the offseason. Yeah. Because your system is like, you know, you you are a professional at getting your adrenaline to kick in when it needs to kick in. Yes. Now. So learning how to do that as well, because that's what makes us functional in our professions, right? Um, game time. It's game time. I mean, I say that about writing grants. It's game time. There's it's time dead, to go. This is why I like deadlines, right? I thrive on deadlines because it's like the ax drops and then there's no, but I'll turn it in tomorrow. It's like, if I want to keep my lab funded, they got deadlines. Now. Right? Deadlines are great. So reward is the way that you get buoyancy, right? That This is why winning teams, I think, tend to win more. This is why, and there's good science around this, that if you win in a previous competition, there's a higher tendency to win in another competition. It all boils down to internal release of dopamine. Chasing stores. the reward. Chasing the reward. Now, the problem is when the rewards are external, you can control them only through your effort. Like monetary. Monetary or a Super Bowl ring for okay, that matter. Sure. Um, everyone, nature wants us to work for external rewards. But there's a, something that is very powerful, which we can all learn, which is how to self-administer rewards en route on the way to those external rewards. And if you look at people that are very successful over in multiple careers, over long periods of time, you look at kids that don't just do well in school, but do well in sport and then go on to have long, healthy careers and lives in, in a lot of domains. They, they don't just work for external rewards. They work for external rewards and they know how to reward themselves in the process. And so it all boils down to the fact that for the brain and for the nervous system, dopamine gives 
resilience at the level of immune system function. It tends to create a certain amount of calm and pleasure in doing activities that leads you to want to do more of those activities. These are the neurochemicals that drive us toward all the goals and, and make us successful. But they, they only exist if you're replenishing yourself. This is why I think, and, and this is just my speculation, I think that one of the reasons why the screening for things like the SEAL teams involves taking away all the baselines, take away people's sleep, take away their sense of control over when things are going to happen, happen, make them cold. They take away all the things and they say, who can still function? Right? They're, taking, they're basically taking the baseline away. Now, with professional athletes and with children, and hopefully we're all doing this for ourselves too, people are outside of that territory. The idea is to try and create as many creature comforts as we can to raise our, our baselines. But what one has to be kind of wary of is if you have too many comforts, right? we can we can get soft. We can lose the ability to lean into exactly things. Exactly right. Right? So... Hopefully, you know, I'm talking about sort of general life things, hopefully in examples people can relate to, some psychology here. Oh, absolutely. But, but the language of the nervous system, the reason that I'm certain about this stuff is that dopamine, norepinephrine, and acetylcholine are focus, drive, and effort. Okay? Focus, drive, and effort. And that's how you get change in the brain. That's how you get better. Has to exist on deep rest, which is serotonin, things like GABA, the ability to be relaxed, like no effort without relaxation. Those that you need the yin. They, so a, this is where, in the science world, that performance meets longevity. And I don't want right. to beat it up. We, sure, we've spent plenty of good time already, but performance and longevity kind of come together when you're cycling in and out of intense work with intense rest. That's right. Absolutely, you need to take the long arc. You know, you need to, we, we, there's so much out there on YouTube and Instagram and everyone that's, that's about like face your fears, growth mindset. You know, one thing I'm really trying to do and, uh, is create a conversation and a community around like, how do you make that actionable in terms of principles of science and medicine? So if you want to live a long life, like Sinclair's talking about this. So now I'm really kind of in his territory. This isn't mine. It's clear that, you know, yes, fasting can help. Caloric restriction can help. There are supplements that he, he, not I, um, you know, or it's talking about that, that can help. Um, I'm not talking about them cause I don't believe in them. I'm talking about them cause that's, that's his territory. Um, things of the, mainly of the NAD pathway, but in general, cycling hard work and rest is the way that you get brain plasticity. Cycling hard work and rest is the way that you get an immune system that can regularly adapt to what comes to it. Cycling periods of effort and reward with relaxation. That's the way you do it. But the, the, your toolkit, the, the, the really exciting thing is that science has delivered to us a toolkit, mainly focus attention, the willingness and understanding, um, the willingness to change and the understanding that it's possible. And then I think these baselines are really key. I think n people don't talk enough about the baselines. Nothing exists on a, uh, on a low baseline for very long. I think of it as like a ship in harbor. It's like it just can't leave. It just can't leave right. unless the tide is high. Right. When tides high, it can go anywhere it wants. And so these are, these are the things, the one, the one, um, last aspect of, of mental performance that we didn't talk about was I get a lot of questions about smart drugs, nootropics. I think they're coming. I think it's a little too soon right now to jump um, on right now. Well, I, I don't think about smart as one thing. So in the strength, in the physical fitness world, we talk about, um, strength, flexibility, endurance, and mobility. So, in the mental performance world, we talk about strategy formation, strategy implementation, 
creativity and task switching ability. So you can't just say smarter, right? Because some people are very creative, um, but they right. suck what at silo are we going to get exactly? Into? And right now, there's no there are no supplements or drugs tailored to each one of these. I will say that things that tend to be stimulants, um, caffeine, um, uh, we sh- you know definitely everyone should stay away from amphetamine and cocaine. But those stimulants and caffeine all share in common that they tend to stimulate dopamine and norepinephrine and acetylcholine. So there's no wonder that those things tend to enhance performance. Now, amphetamine and cocaine are incredibly detrimental to baselines, which is the reason why that they're not just illegal, but they, they just basically they crush people's lives, right? Ultimately, they just destroy lives yeah. because ba- they drop people's baselines. Caffeine is, you know, one of caffeine and alcohol. So um, norepinephrine stimulation and GABA stimulation, caffeine for norepinephrine, GABA for uh, alcohol for, for GABA are the two most widely used um, compounds on the planet. And have been for many, many centuries um, because they work. You know, caffeine will help you lean into effort and uh, alcohol will help you detach from effort. It's just kind of the way it works. Um, There are things, however, there are non-caffeine, non-alcohol ways to augment focus and relaxation um, that are legal and reasonably safe, although people should always check with their doctor. One is for um, the, there's a uh, amino acid that is a precursor of dopamine, which is L-tyrosine. L-tyrosine is present in red meats, which is why, provided you don't eat, you know, two ribeye steaks and then your gut is full of blood, um, the meat-based diets tend to promote more alertness. It's rich in L-tyrosine. Some people supplement L-tyrosine at about like 500 to 800 milligrams um, in order to increase alertness. Not something one would want to do you would want to do often because you want to make your own dopamine. You want to be able to create your own endogenous chemicals. But, um, and I'm not recommending people do any of this, but I'd rather see people doing that than taking, um, you know, Adderall without a prescription or something like that. Because Adderall is amphetamine. There's a reason why it gives you focus and attention. It's norepinephrine and dopamine. Um, On the relaxation side, L-tryptophan is a precursor of serotonin. L-tryptophan is present in things like turkey, which is why people, you know, you have to eat a lot of turkey, but to get a lot of L-tryptophan, but, you know, people supplement L-tryptophan to get uh, serotonin stimulation. Now, you can go to the health food store and buy pure L-tryptophan. You can go to the health food store, uh, sorry, uh, pure serotonin. You can go to the health food store and buy L-dopamine. You can literally buy it. It's called Macunapurians, and it's 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 literally you're buying dopamine. Wow! But I don't recommend that people supplement at that far end of these biochemical pathways. So taking precursors is much safer always than taking um, the the endpoint and not taking anything and generating these things from within without any help. That's where you become a really confident you know person because you know you can generate it just through your own psychology. Um, acetylcholine and focus. There's a movement starting now and I'm not a proponent nor um, do I think it's a bad thing. There is a compound that increases acetylcholine and that some people believe is going to be protective against Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. It's under testing. It's not um, proven yet. And that is nicotine. Nicotine is an acetylcholine stimulant. It's, it creates acetylcholine, which is why I think for a lot of years, people were so attached to their cigarettes. It wasn't just the act of smoking. Now, of course, so many yeah. guys in our meeting room would just sit there and dip or chew. Right. And, it, and for their alertness. Yep. While yep. we're in the middle of training camp, they would always, I mean, they'd be passing around tens of skull or tens of grizzly or whatever it was and just to stay alert. It works. 
and the problem is the cancer the cancer issue. So right. um, I know people that chew Nicorette. I know a Nobel Prize winning scientist who chews a lot of Nicorette to protect against Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and to improve his focus because he was a chronic smoker and he quit. Um, so am I pr- a proponent of Nicorette? No, not at all. Um, just to say that nicotine stimulation will enhance focus. It's probably if someone's going to go that route will be better to use for very specific bouts of learning than to use continually because it's the, the effects are going to wear off okay. anyway. There are people now who are, who are literally taking um, nicotine toothpicks and the, and just their toothpicks that have been laced with, with nicotine. No kidding. Yeah. So the, the world is headed this way. Um, and so the reason we touched on psychedelics and supplements and nicotine and all this stuff is because it's out there. And I, I used to think I, you know, it, these weren't conversations I was um, interested in having because I want to, you know, I don't want to come across as biased one way or the other. But I think that people are encountering this stuff all the time. So I voiced my opinions. People is is America. And, and thank goodness we can make our own decisions. Um, everyone can make their own decisions so they can decide. But there are tools to enhance these things. But. But just think about it. I think just to kind of bring it all together, if one is getting good night's sleep and doing practices to improve their relaxation on average, social connection, good nutrition, exercise, you're setting yourself up for the best possible life within which you can learn anything you want through very specific bouts of attention and focus where you can say, hey, look, I I don't like where I'm at with something. I'm going to get better at it. And the key thing is to remember to self-reward. This is so important. I don't think it's not telling yourself you won. You know, let's say that you want to, you know, develop better cardiovascular fitness, drop 50 pounds. Just putting your shoes next to the door is not the same as going for a run. However, if putting your shoes near the door gives you and you reward yourself for it such that you get out the door the next day. And then you reward yourself for that such that you go a little bit further the next day and the next day. And then pretty soon you're in a regular routine and you're rewarding yourself for that regular routine. You are building this, this capacity. And what's so cool is that the neuroscience says that it's not just going to be limited to running, that you can take that, that whole process and you can transfer it to anything else you want. You can transfer it to new challenges that arrive in life. You can transfer it to things that you want to learn. You can transfer it to essentially to anything because what you've done is you've established a pathway that looks like it corresponds to running, but it corresponds to everything. You, you taught yourself a process. So it's because the nervous system is so simple, once you master that process, you really can accomplish anything you want through this series of steps. And the neurochemical pathways and the, the, the way, you know, the sort of examples we've, we've used to kind of color all this are just one set of examples, but the neurochemical pathways are foundational. They haven't changed in 10,000 years and they are not going to change for the next 10,000 years. And nature gave them to all of us. So there's like this gift and we're supposed to use it. So I guess my hope is that people will use these. Get using it, people. Here's one thing little before we go, one little thing that I do to reward myself. And this is silly. A lot of times when I'm done with a good session of work or something, or I get done with a good workout, I literally put my hands in the air like I just won a championship, like both hands, fist in the air, and I'm like, yes, I did it. And it, like even doing it, sitting here talking to you, I'm like, oh, my God, my heart's beating a little faster. Like we accomplished something super right. cool. Because you've wired it into your system. And I think people, you know, if they, if they feel silly rewarding themselves for doing things that seem trivial, just understand that this is the amplifier. Like this is the, the – if. I I never, you know, there's no one secret sauce or there's no one magic pill, but if ever there were were something like that, a a, a superpower, 
that all human beings have. It's this capacity to self-reward behaviors that are in the direction we want to go. Like, it's just, there's nothing quite like it because it can get you through anything and make you better as you do it. Grit and mental toughness are necessary, but they are not sufficient in life. They, w- they, they inevitably lead to burnout if you don't couple them to this self-reward capacity. So it's awesome that you've built that in for yourself. Andrew, yeah. right. thank you so much. Thank that thank was you. fantastic. Well, wasn't that a fun little time warp? I hope that's not the last time that I get to pick that guy's brain. Unreal, as it seemed like we were just scratching the surface right there. So before we get going, I mentioned that we well, we like to keep it to like 45 minutes or an hour. But the next thing, I looked at the time on the recording device that I use, and we had almost hit two hours. So I, I hope you guys don't mind me taking a little bit of liberties there. But I was just drawn in and completely enthralled in that conversation. Okay, my big takeaways. The three necessary components for neuroplasticity once we are past the age of 25, and remember this before we lay it out, that he mentioned it's best for learning to do it in short bouts of two to 10 minutes. I'm sure that's going to be a challenge. First off, you have to feel frustration, which is accompanied by the release of acetylcholine. So remember, you have to feel frustration when learning a new task. Secondly, create urgency in the learning by releasing adrenaline which increases that level of focus and allows us to dial in it's why i guess many of us procrastinate so with a deadline our focus and that adrenaline naturally spikes and it naturally ramps up the adrenaline third and this can't be understated is rewarding yourself so dopamine is released and i'd I'd really argue that most successful people can reward themselves not with money or prizes special accommodation or drugs alcohol whatever but with simple self-talk getting genuinely excited over accomplishing minor tasks that are taking them in the right direction of where they think they want to go. And I I mentioned it on the podcast. I like to throw my hands in victory when I complete a task, like fist pump, like you just scored a touchdown. You lock in that reward system. You're more likely to return to the work that got you to release that dopamine in the first place, which means that you can continue to learn and you can continue to work and remain healthy while doing it. Another thing that stood out to me, which is counterintuitive, because all that we hear about the negative components associated with it is a lean into stress a little bit. It actually does have some positives to it. It can lead to an increase in your immunity if it can be framed positively in the brain. And another thing about stress is the necessity to cycle out of the stress properly and to be able to fully recover. So, not surprisingly, we talk a lot about sleep as a recovery mechanism, and I guess you probably sense a theme here. Get your sleep, people. I had never heard of something that he brought up in the podcast called Yoga Nidra as a way of practicing getting into deep sleep. So, we all talk about how important this deep sleep is it, it is in our lives, yet we don't practice it at all. So, this Yoga Nidra is a way that you can practice it. I've since I've been practicing after I got done talking with him and I, I track my sleep every single night and I have for a number of years now. I don't remember, as you heard me say, getting ever above one hour of deep sleep in the time that I've been tracking. But since switching off the melatonin, as he recommended, and practicing the yoga nidra, I've gotten consecutive nights of an hour and 10 minutes, hour and 30 minutes, plus one hour, which I could never really achieve. And not surprisingly, of course, The next day, I felt great. So I took him up on his sleep protocol, which included, and I thought this was a a fantastic tangible. One, put down the melatonin, because that's a hormone and it has some really adverse effects over the long term, which included 
200 to 600 milligrams of magnesium threonate, that's T-H-R-E-O-N-A-T-E, and then 100 to 200 milligrams of theanine, T-H-E-A-N-I-N-E. So that's a GABA precursor, and GABA is a neurotransmitter inhibitor, and he said you really want to go after the precursor, not the thing itself. And then, of course, put down the melatonin. And I've yet to receive my order of his other recommendation, which is 50 milligrams of apigenin, A-P-I-G-E-N-I-N. You'll have to order that one on Amazon. I've done that. You can't find it at Vitamin Shop. You can't find it at Sprouts. You can't find it at Whole Foods. You have to get that one on Amazon. I'm going to give it a try. If you guys want to wait till I give it a try, that's totally fine. So as he lays it out, we must lay a good foundation beginning with quality sleep, number one. Social connection number two. So when he said that immediately, I'm like, that's the area that I've got to get better at is my social connection. I'm really involved with my family. Yes, we go out in the community, but I think I do have to do a better job with friends. And I'm really working to improve on that area. But then quality nutrition, hydration, exercise, and self-reward. And positive talk, like the self-reward. It sounds so woo-woo. But there are actual positive neurochemical processes that are activated by speaking to yourself in in a positive manner. I hope you enjoyed hanging, guys. Thank you for being with me. Until next time, here's to your health.